0: gives you baby. It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. DROP! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. You had time to waste, It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth as well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now.
1: (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. As always, my name is David, and uh, Chris is sitting this one out this week, but don't worry. He is enjoying himself up in Memphis, and he will be back with us next week. So before we do get started, I want to tell you to follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed and like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at Digital Killed, the Radio Star Podcast. So this podcast has been in the planning stages for about four or five months, if I'm being honest, and a little thing called COVID-19 happened in the middle of March and uh, really put the kibosh on on a lot of stuff, and uh, we wanted to ultimately do this podcast in person instead of over Skype, so we had to wait uh, until the time was right, so... Um, my first guest is, uh, my buddy Kyle Null, who you've all known, been heard before. He's been on here four or five times. Uh, always, hello, hello, always, always gets a good response. Kyle, how are you doing?
2: Good, good. Excited to be back.
1: So I was telling Kyle when he got here, uh, when he walked through the, the door, he was the first person without my last name to come through the doors of this house since March the 12th. And so. for that
2: reason, I am honored.
1: Yes. And, uh, so my wife and I were cleaning the house today. She made me polish the silver, Kyle. Polish this. I polished silver today. Is was, that a
2: euphemism, or is that no? I, I actually, just actually, polished, I actually silver. polished
1: silver because we were having people over, and there hasn't been anybody here since March. Really? so uh, First of all, it's not very hard. No, I can't imagine that it would uh, be. I, I, thought it, I thought it was going to be like wax on, wax off. Like this collaring. is still not you a to, euphemism, right? Right. Okay. And you had to like really scrub. It's, yeah. it's really, it's not that big of a deal. But anyway, uh, I, I don't told, even have any silver to polish. Yeah. Well, we do. Uh, you <laughs> know my wife, so we, we've, got, we've got silver. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so everybody is familiar with Kyle. And then uh, my buddy Chipper, uh, I've known for a while uh, through his wife and my wife are real good friends and have gotten to know him. And uh, he is a big metalhead, probably one of the biggest metalheads that I do know. And uh, I've been, honestly, for the last year or so, trying to think of a way to get him on here and and something that would be kind of in his wheelhouse. And uh, we had, I guess it was having dinner New Year's Eve or something. And and I just got to talking about this. And there was another opportunity I had that didn't didn't work out that I wanted him on. So we got to talk. I know he's a big Metallica fan. We got to talking, and I said, well, it would be great if he came on and, and did a metallic episode with me and Kyle. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, my good
3: buddy Chipper. David, it fired up to be here, man. This is awesome. <laughs> I know. This is I, awesome. I'm going to try not to embarrass myself. Oh, you're going to? Between you guys, I, I don't know what I got to bring to the table here, but let's yeah, do it. man. You're, you're,
1: you're going to be fine. All right, so everybody kind of knows about Kyle uh, at this point. <laughs> Um, why don't you tell everybody, like, I don't know, maybe like your top four or five bands and what kind of music you like to listen to?
3: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, all right. Yeah. I'm a metalhead man. Uh, since gosh, 14, 15 years old. Uh, let me tell you, it's tough being an adult <laughs> and being a metalhead, you know, in a professional setting. Uh, people are like, you need to listen to one. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like that, yeah, but whatever. So it's good. Um, man, rank order is going to be real tough for the top five you don't have to rank them yeah, the, top, the five. top five uh i'll tell you metallica is number two number two without question number one it's pantera all day man uh, motorheads up there guns is up there uh i know kyle you're the resident i'm wearing and a shirt no less yes in
2: the video version of this podcast had had we had it i'm wearing a guns and roses shirt because as i was getting ready to come over here today um i don't have a metallica shirt Bless. don't even actually that's not true I have a, when Metallica and Guns toured in 92, I believe it was, it was the, the co-head, yep. I've got that shirt. Not that I went there, but my mom found it at like Sound Shop or something and brought it home knowing that I like Guns N' Roses, but go. that shirt is still at my folks' house. Didn't think to go get All it, right, was so that, I could have done that. Was Soundgarden the opener for that? I don't know. I'm not sure. All they right. didn't make the shirt, I can All tell right. you that.
1: So here, here's a quick uh, pointless trivia. Guess who they originally asked to have that spot? The Black Crows. Or, and the Black Crowes told them,
2: nope. It all comes back to the Black Crowes. It does. It does. <laughs> so they, uh, and everything uh, comes back.
1: They decided they wanted to uh, do a, a tour on their own, headline. And so uh, they didn't. All right. So Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Pantera, Motorhead. Slayer.
3: Slayer guy. Yeah. So are you sad that they're, that they're done? <sighs> yeah. And I'm even more sad I didn't see the last show there. Uh, <laughs> work Things uh you know responsibilities and what have you couldn't get away um but i caught it on i guess it was youtube yeah so that was awesome angel of death is the last one that's perfect
2: perfect (laughs) so in of your top five you've got two of the big four yes that's the math i just did is that correct
3: that would be correct
2: so are the other two big four in your top 10 no really
3: i'm 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 not an anthrax guy, and I'm not a uh, not a Megadeth guy. Really? Let yeah, me ask really you not. this: really Would
1: you be a Megadeth guy if the le- if there was another person singing?
3: Potentially. I think that's kind of a that's yes. kind of a deal breaker with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. it's just, dude, M- Mustaine he's he's got chops, he can play, but uh, it's the lyrics, man. I don't know. Uh, there's,
2: yeah, they're occasionally juvenile, and every once in a while, I know this is the Metallica episode, but. They're occasionally juvenile, and every once in a while, it just feels like they opened up a dictionary, and they're like, what's the coolest, most deathly word I can include? Diadems. What is that? It means a crown. doesn't matter. Let's write a song about it. (laughs) And I I get it. I did that, too, when I was writing songs when I was 17, but it does feel a little bit immature. Does anything rhyme with that? Diadems? Mm, Orange? No. October. (laughs) October. No, not
1: that either. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you kind of you kind of sounded like Dave Mustaine when you were talking. I was writing my song. <laughs> All right, so uh, obviously you can tell about the title of this episode It's going to be about Metallica, and we're, we're going to get to the band uh, in a second. But also, one of the things we're going to do is uh, Kyle and I are both. Uh, uh, you're you're more of a beer guy, aren't you? I right? am. All right. Yeah, I am. Kyle and I, I are both uh, bourbon guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you say. I try safely... not to discriminate, but yeah, you can safely say we're bourbon guys. And so, obviously, Metallica has released a blended whiskey um, called Blackened, and it's been out maybe a year and a half or so. And uh, they're making a big deal out of the fact they're about to release batch number 100, and um, they're going to uh, release it in like a commemorative box, and it's going to have vinyl. And it's uh, each batch has a playlist. When they're aging it in the barrels, they blast the uh, the barrels with music, and Metallica picks the playlist for each batch. Well, this really, it sounds kind of revolutionary, but I've done some reading that there's, there's some science behind it, and, and, and some people have tried this kind of stuff before, and uh, anyway, uh, people think it helps uh, with the uh, distilling process, and helping to, uh, I guess, get more burnt whiskey rubbing up against the oak of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the barrel, or whatever. So, uh, what I thought we would do is, I was able to get my hands on a bottle of Blackened, and uh, Chipper, I told Kyle... Uh, beforehand, I was trying to get a bottle for the two of you for the podcast to have as a gift and it just didn't work out where I was able to get it. So uh,
3: Did you tell Kyle about the uh, the, the beer saga? Yeah, he, he uh, was
1: trying to get the uh, inter beer for us to have. Yeah,
2: yeah well, see, my, when he told me that, that you were going to try to get that, yeah. I was like, well, what can I get? Because, like, now we're out of metallic alcohol. Like, I've got to get something, right? Do they do chocolates? Well, I, that's, that would have been a good thing to look I up. Know. I know. right? <laughs> something with some creatine. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but I was going to actually get the Megadeth beer, and then on the podcast I was going to have us pour three-quarters Metallica, one-quarter Megadeth, just to see how it tastes, because it could have been better, you know? Mm. Something to think about. Interesting. But also, I could not get that. Or I mean, I, I did search around for it, and I found a website that you could get it. And it was going to be like 30 bucks for the six-pack. Not that y'all weren't worth it, but then I have to think, like, well, how do they even ship a six-pack? Like, do you want that shaken up? Like, I didn't even understand the, the mechanics of it. And so, so mechanics, that was, a, I, that was a pun, and I didn't even need to do it.
1: <laughs>
0: mechanics. Right, with an,
2: with an X. With an yep. X, yep. So, so that's what we could have had yeah. in the interest of talking about other things we could have had.
1: Now, I've actually had it uh, when I... Chipper and I went to the same show to see them last year in Birmingham and they were selling it there. And so uh, me and my buddy Bobby got one and we had is weird. We had the exact same reaction to it. The first sip was horrible. Starting with the second sip, it got better every time. Uh, I don't know why that is. Uh, I'm not a big like beer aficionado mm-hmm. and it's a pilsner. So it's not like an IPA or anything like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, we bought it. So. Well, their
2: first album wasn't that good, and then the second <laughs> one got better. Right. right. And- uh. Come on, man! <laughs> I was reaching for that yeah. one. I can't even remember the first album. So th- this was from Batch
1: '95, and so I'm going to pour myself a glass, and uh, Kyle is going to pour yes. himself a glass, and we have opened it up earlier and let it. Um, it's
2: breathing a little bit.
1: Let it breathe a little bit. I heard that it needs to.
2: Well, in in all fairness, the first, the Kill 'Em All, it's, uh-huh. it's a great album. It's, it's just life. mixed terribly, and it's it's, it's played. Very, it's very young. Yes, it's very young. It's yes, very, very young. immature. Yes.
1: So, uh, like I said, this isn't necessarily bourbon; it's a blended whiskey. Mm-hmm. And uh, all right, let's there you see go. Here, Kyle, let's ha- let's take a sip and see what we think.
2: All right, not awful. No, I think that's good. It's very balanced. It's not very hot at all. No, there's a touch of heat at the end. Well, we it's, got a little ice in here too, so perhaps yeah. we should have done it like a, a pure. <laughs> A Pure study on that. I
1: think I did, I think it was $50 for the for the fifth. Um, that's I'd say it's a $35 bottle if I had to put it. I
2: don't know. I mean, I think it's it, I mean, it's hard to say. I know we have favorites within our yeah. 60 range and 40 range and all that, but it's, it's I don't think that's bad. No, it's better than like a bottle of Jack Daniels straight. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, it tastes like one of those that's like the gentleman's jack or the ones that have been like gone through some kind of extra process right. to take away some of the, and I don't know what what really it is but take away some of the heat some of that I don't know if it's impurities or something unholy but chipper
1: <clears throat> chipper he, chipper is uh, due to his job is unable to consume alcohol tonight but yeah i yeah. think chipper would i think as a non bourbon person you would think this is pretty smooth and doesn't have a whole lot of a bite to it
2: yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. He Chipper's a, he's a Baptist preacher, so on um, <laughs> Saturdays he yeah. cannot do this, but if this was on a Tuesday, he'd be all about all, it. All in it. You Chipper better watch out.
1: Chipper's actually pilot. Okay, well. So uh, all right, so this was batch number 95 and Lars Ulrich curated curated the list. So I'm going to go through the songs. We have For Whom the Bell Tolls, Here Comes Revenge, The Thing That Should Not Be, Fade to Black, Metal Militia, The Outlaw Torn. Through the Never and mm. Lords of
3: Summer. The only one I would take off is Metal Militia. What about oh, you, Chipper? I would, uh, uh, it's a tough, man. Um, honestly, I'm going to take off Fade to Black. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to take off Fade to Black. That's mm. kind of gutsy. All right, Kyle, it's just going to be you and me on the podcast. Yeah. Right?
2: No, uh, I'm sorry. You guys, I'm sorry. I would yeah, I'm take not into off. Alads. Let's see. I would take off Lars Ulrich. No. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm kidding. Um, I would probably also take off Metal Militia. It's good, but Fade to Black is is probably one of my favorites. Outlaw Torn is just amazing. It's so good, isn't it? Um, through the Never. Have you heard?
1: The, you heard the unedited Outlaw Torn? They had to take. Right, so no. they had to take a minute off of the solo of Outlaw Torn because Load was the longest CD ever released. They ran completely ran out of space. Wow. And so, like, you can go on YouTube, and I'm gonna be That's honest with you. The the solo that they chopped off if you listen to it now adds a whole lot to the song it's kind of a p- weird piece of trivia yeah. I need to
2: check that out so just in the interest of looking at so a, a standard CD is 80 minutes so when Philips and Sony back in the early 80s came up with what the standard was and I'm going to totally uh, I don't I don't remember what the, what the classical music piece was but one of the heads of Sony or Philips said well it should be able to fit like Beethoven's like entire concerto or I, I have no idea but it should complete that that's what it should be able to fit and then they looked up what that was, and it was basically like 75 minutes, and so it was like, or 75 and a half. So it became 76. That was the first standard of CD. And then, uh, lo and behold, a couple of years later, they added about five minutes to it. Now the standard CD is 80 minutes. Okay? I know I missed, like, probably a ton of really interesting history there, but it's 78 minutes and 59 seconds is what load is. So I had to look that mm-hmm. up just because I've never even heard that, so I've got to look up Outlaw Torn after this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so they had to uh, they had to cut like a like a minute off of it. So,
3: um, so was that the playlist that they use for every batch, or is it unique no, to that unique? No, it's unique to that batch. So, what okay. you do is
1: like, you see how it says Batch ninety five yeah. right there? So you go online and you look it up, and it tells you the um, the songs that they that they blasted it with while they was pretty aged cool. It. And the guy, I believe, man, I hope I'm not wrong. Cause apologies to his family if I am. The guy that they hired to um, to make the whiskey, I think his name's Dave Picknell, Pickerel, or something like. that. Anyway, I think he just died, um, and so I think he was kind of a big deal in the in the liquor industry for being a distiller. But um, yeah, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised by. it, To be completely honest, I'm
2: always me. nervous when I have an alcohol uh, or anything for that matter that a celebrity is associated with. You know, because I just think like this is going to be Planet Hollywood, this is going to be Planet, this is going to be a burger at Planet Hollywood. I don't care if slide stones on the, on the picture. It's not going to taste good. I've been pleasantly surprised by a few that I've had. Um, one, Carlos Santana's tequila, Casa de Noble, Casa Noble, um, solid. One of my favorites. So I got to admit of, of all the rock star alcohols, like this may be another one of my favorites. I like it. When well, we're done here tonight, I'm
1: going to let you sample some of Bob Dylan's bourbon. I love it. Uh, That's
2: called heaven's door. Uh, Heaven,
1: heaven's door. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, yeah. Um, Anyway. If we don't play our cards right, we'll be knocking on that later. Oh. All
1: right. So, obviously, the podcast is about Metallica. Uh, Chipper, since it's your first time on, we'll start with you. Um, Tell everybody kind of
3: how you became a fan of Metallica. My Metallica journey, for lack of a better term, even a heavy metal journey, if you will, started with Metallica, and it started with this record. Um, So, I was a freshman high school. Friends were swapping around, figuring out, hey, what's cool, what's not cool to listen to. And I had a friend that got me on to Aussie and Sabbath. And so it was a lot of Aussie and Sabbath for a little while for me. And then another friend was like, hey, if you like that, come here, try this. Let's put this on track five.
1: Track five, track five is uh, Wherever I May Roam. Wherever
3: I May Roam. That was it. That was my first Metallica track. I was hooked. I was really? In. I was in. Is was in. It was, in. It, it was one of those experiences that, you know, you don't have often in your life where all of a sudden there's noise and it's congruent with the noise that's already in your head. And I was like, this is it. So I went out, saved nickels, dimes, all that fun stuff, bought this record, listened to it, wore it out. And then after that, I went back to what I like to think of is the canon of Metallica. And I bought the others started with kill them all and started working my way to the black album. And then post after that, it was in order with load reload and here we are. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh yeah, it started here. Started with this record. What about you, Kyle?
2: So mine, um, slightly before that. So I, and I I may have come in contact with Metallica prior to the story I'm about to tell. In the same way that I came in contact with Pink Floyd before I really uh, fell in love with them. So I heard Money on the radio, for example, but it wasn't until I heard Mother off of the wall in like this nowhere trailer in in deep Mississippi that I was like, who is this? I love this. And it was like, and it was actually not just Mother, but it was Goodbye Blue Sky right after that. And I just couldn't i couldn't stop listening after that. And so, um, but I know, and once I got into it, I was like, oh, I've heard Money. I've heard Money on the radio for years, you know, in um, and time. And so it, likewise, I'm sure I heard Fade to Black. I'm sure that I heard Master of Puppets somewhere. But the one that I really recall, if you're making me pinpoint a moment, you were like, who is this band? What is this? I'm now into this band. It was One. The video for One was playing on MTV when MTV used to play, Videos. In fact, you just sent us a meme today. MTV's 39 years old, so we, we had a moment of silence to celebrate 14 years of music. <laughs> so I thought that was a great, very poignant meme. But um, so my, my buddy, we were... Um, he had this way that he had his speakers. It was like a golden triangle. Like he had them perfectly positioned kind of just slightly inward so that they're pointing at your ears just perfect, but it was actually behind me. So if you laid down... This is going to sound a little pervy, but if you lay down in his bed, they were kind of behind your ears and then just pointed directly at you, and it created this weird, like, surround sound thing, this feel, but it was only left-right stereo, you know? But it just, the way that he had him positioned was just awesome. And I distinctly remember, like, dude, let's, I want to listen to one. I want to listen to that double bass, oh, and like, you know, going opposing ears. And, and so one was the first song that I really got into Metallica, and that was around the same time I started getting into guitar. Um... So I got that, but then one had been out, what was that, 87, 88, I believe? Oh,
3: Justice, that was, yeah. Justice. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um And so that had been out probably a year or so, and so I was just on the cusp of, I was just picking up guitar, just starting to learn it, and then Black Album came out, blew my mind, right? And uh, actually, the first song that I picked out on guitar was Inner Sandman, and I didn't pick it out on purpose. I didn't, like, listen to the song and, like, try to, like, figure out where my fingers should go. I was just goofing off one day on this little cheapo guitar, uh, pract- like a learning guitar, and I accidentally went... Do, da, da, da. And I mean, I stopped. I was like, "Ha! Huh, I have it. I have the power. This is great. And so... Um, that is a very distinct memory. I have very you know you know memories are funny like how they come up and what you what you choose to remember or what your body forces you to remember. But that was the two earliest memories that I have of Metallica. But definitely one is what got me into them in the video for that, um, and Johnny Get Your Gun or whatever that whole like, I mean that was just it was like disturbing but also like awesome. Uh, and and you didn't see other videos like that. I didn't. You know, I mean, you they saw, bought that entire movie. Yeah,
1: they, they own the rights to it. Oh really? To have yeah, that's cool. Um, So I'm a little bit A couple of years older Than you guys But um, We went on An overnight field trip I was in Maybe the 5th or 6th grade And my buddy Henry Like we got assigned Like 4 guys to our rooms Obviously you know You had to to share a bed With somebody And my buddy Henry Had an older sister Who was into like metal And uh, this is when we had Like uh, Walkmans Cassettes or whatever Anyway so we got ready To go to bed or whatever And he's like hey my sister gave me some of her cassette tapes for us to listen to. And uh, I'm like, okay. And I'm like, who are they? And he's like, it's Slayer and Metallica. Yes. So it's like Slayer, that that, rain and blood. Yes. And then Metallica master of puppets. Now, so I would have been like 11 or 12 and these had been out for a couple of years. And he put on Metallica or Slayer one and it scared me. And I was like, not like this like this i, I don't you know I, and i
2: at that point i was like in a friday the 13th kind of way or just like,
1: kind of like this i don't know this is weird cause just like i was weird. really into like bon jovi and poison yeah stuff that bon different and all that yeah uh-uh.
2: and so Ain't nobody um, smiling in these videos
1: <laughs> then i remember like a year or so later uh i was laying in bed one night couldn't sleep and i turned on the tv and uh the video they were like we're gonna pr- premiere the first ever video from the band metallica and I was like, oh, I remember them. You know, they kind of—it was really loud and aggressive. And they put on the video for one. It's like I'm watching like the middle of night, and I was like, this video actually scares me. <laughs> and but I was like, this is a good song. So fast forward a couple of years later, um, I'm going to my uh, aunt and uncle's house in Mobile, and my cousin, she's like two years older than me. She was like way into Metallica, like all the the thrash stuff. And I remember riding with my uncle, and they're go on the radio, and they're go, we're going to debut the new single from. The metallica's new album inner sandman and it plays and my cousin is just mad they've sold out they sold out they sent metallica and i was like that was really really good so i went out and bought it and then um you know listened to it a lot you know but i really didn't get into like the earlier stuff i still hadn't gone down that road and about the time load came out i really went back and got into it like I'm not a big fan of Kill 'Em All. One of the main reasons the production value That's is horrible. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. Master of yeah. Puppets is probably my favorite. Like, if you took like the percentage of songs that I love on an album, Master of Puppets is going to be the highest. Um, yes. But in the last probably ten years, Metallica's gone to be in like a top ten band for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, same. I, I think I pretty much own everything they've done visually,
3: and
2: I don't own Saint
3: Anger. I I bought it. Hmm. Uh, the only Metallica record mm-hmm. that i don't own is lulu lulu yeah and he gave air quotes right before that yes. so he, yeah. he said yeah. metallica, metallica air quotes
2: well, well, chris who normally i don't own the, lulu either that's a good point chris
1: chris who normally does the podcast with me
2: actually likes lulu so <sighs> here's the deal like i consider myself a very open-minded person i haven't even listened to it that's me i mean it's been uh-huh. like i got it was so terribly reviewed that i just said i just can't even spend any time on that so if you showed me one of the songs and, and bet me $100, whether you know, if I could guess what, what I would lose every time. Yeah, dude, know? if you played it right
1: now, I'd be like, what is this?
2: Mm-hmm. It,
1: it sounds like Lou Reed playing with Metallica. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, mean, I just don't know. I mean, and even the band, I think, has been like, it just sounded like a good idea when he mentioned it to us. But then the execution of it well, just I think, fell apart. I think he <laughs> said that,
1: like, they, cause, you know they played with him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. Yep. And I think he just was like, hey, guys, like, let's do something together. And they were like, yeah, sure, just being nice. And then, like, he calls them. <laughs> it's like, uh oh. You know, we're in trouble here. Yeah, guys. Lou's coming to collect. <laughs> yeah. Lars,
3: get your drums.
1: <laughs> All right. So, you know, the diehard Metallica fans, a lot of them still will tell you they don't listen to anything post Injustice for All. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Th- they'll, they'll say the band sold out and they changed, which they did change. Sure they uh, did. Metallica, I think, is like, since 1991, has legitimately been searching for an identity. Uh, and, and I. Th- you know, St. Anger was horrible, and Death Magnetic, I thought was... Death Magnetic's probably a top four Metallica album for me. Mm-hmm. And then Hardwired to Self-Destruct came out, which sounds more like Load than probably anything else they've done. And I'm not a big fan of double albums. I think you whittle that one down to
3: one album and you're on to something. Well, what's interesting yeah. is, is Load and Reload, it's one body of work. Right. Mm-hmm. And they just ended up, you know, a year separation between releasing them. Which was probably a smart move. I think, I'm pretty sure. It when is. you think about how difficult it
2: must be to keep longe- longevity and relevance in a band, that's that's probably a good idea in most any case, yeah. you know? So it's a little odd that they would do a double album, but, I mean, it served them well. I mean, it's one of the biggest tours they've been on probably since the Black Album. Yeah. I mean, they've been doing this two and a half years, yeah. something yeah. like that, before yeah. COVID.
1: So, and Justice for All was the previous album, and I was watching on one of the, the documentaries about them, I can't remember... I think it was their manager said until the black album was released there were only 10 radio stations in America that ever played Metallica that's mm-hmm. accurate it's got to be accurate yeah. and Justice for all Bernstein I think yeah, yeah. yeah. Q prime yep. uh, the the injustice for all was this massive borderline like Prague album uh, you know and, and it had all these different lyrical themes like uh, nuclear war um, the justice system people going insane and stuff like that. It was kind Mm -hmm. of a cohesive bottle. Basically, it was like all the ills of society that you can imagine. But it's mixed terribly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have to get into that because everybody knows the story of that. But it's horribly mixed. But also, this was the biggest tour they'd done. And apparently,
3: the songs were just so hard to play live. Well, yeah. I think that's the salient point when we start talking about why the Black Album is the way the Black Album is is when those guys were on tour and they did this huge tour every night, they said, you know, the game was about not messing up. And Mm -hmm. Newstead said, it was like, you know, every song's a double black diamond level of difficulty. (laughs) And you, you know, there's no groove in it. It's, uh, it's, it's mechanical Mm -hmm. and you're up there and you're just trying to get after it every night on tour and not mess up. So to the point that some of those songs did not
1: get played until, um, I think the 30th anniversary shows, Mm -hmm. um, like um, uh, to is it to live and die? That, um, uh, to live is to die. To live, to live, die. To to die. live yeah, is to, live to die. die. Yeah, yeah. and um, I don't know. The Freight ends of sanity that was yeah. very
3: rarely ever played. Mm-hmm. What um, a good one, man! Uh, and I know where you guys are on the anthology of of favorite Metallica records, dude. I'm that guy. Uh, but but when you when you talk about justice, it's almost like you have to preface it with, "I know the mix is bad." Well, I see what I've what I've yeah. done is yeah.
1: I've gone on. LiveMetallica.com or whatever it is, and downloaded them performing individual songs yeah. and made a playlist of them live. And uh, that's and awesome. On YouTube, there's an Injustice for Jason where somebody has gone in and added bass mm-hmm. to the tracks. Um, but like we were discussing earlier, they really missed an opportunity to hit a home run when they re-released this. They yeah could have remixed it
2: they could have so they've done a remaster campaign over the last several years basically with the hardwired album and tour coming up they really capitalized on that released a couple of box sets and remastered and it was available in a number of of, of uh you know formats and i rebought Killem kill em all because it deserved to be remastered you know um, it probably deserves to be re-recorded, yeah. but um, I, I bought puppets. I bought ride the lightning, and I skipped injustice for all because I read reviews about it, and it was like it was only remastered. And so the difference between mastering and mixing, just in case folks don't know on the on the pot that are listening. When you mix something, like before we started this podcast, I mixed our voices together. So that way when I'm talking, I'm about as loud as Dave and about as loud as Chipper is talking. That's mixing. So I can bring you down in the mix. I can bring you up in the mix. Mastering is a process where you're kind of like leveling out and making a complete story out of the album because sometimes you record in L.A., sometimes you record in London, sometimes you're in Canada, and which was in the case with the Metallica Black album. They recorded in multiple different places, but can you imagine that happening Different equipment, different feel, different room sound. You have to kind of balance the whole album together, even, even sometimes yeah. different levels between the different songs. So that's the difference between mixing and mastering, right? So just to kind of level set with all with the audience. Just this should have been remixed and possibly remastered, right? That's the, that's the key yeah. distinction between that. So I will not be a purchaser until it becomes remixed. A repurchaser, already on the original. Yeah, screen, you probably right? won't be buying it again. I probably won't. And that's okay. All right, so <clears throat> they
1: have this conundrum. They're at the height of their popularity at that point. You know, they, they're never played on the radio. They had the one video on M T V, but they're selling out arenas. They've got this rabid fan base. And what do they decide to do, Kyle? How do the, how do they how do they get to where they're gonna record this and how they're gonna record it?
2: Well, so I think they had all acknowledged, like you kind of alluded to this a little bit. They had kind of acknowledged like well, you know we've we kind of cr- helped create this genre that is thrash metal right and in essence we've kind of dominated it right but they also have recognized that they've only produced themselves right they've never really had a producer come in they've had other people mixing things and like of course in the studios and all that and again to level set with the audience When you say someone produced an album, that really means that they gave some kind of overall guidance as to where some of the songs should go, sometimes even giving opinions about the arrangements, you know, stick a solo here versus here, those sorts of things, coaching with solos. That's what Bob Rock did a lot of with with Kirk, was to coach in solos and kind of bring out the best in him, whereas before, Metallica were kind of left up to their own devices, right? And um, so they had kind of decided that, like, well, we need to do something different, you know, we need to find something different because we're kind of reaching a height of popularity and, um, and you know, a height of popularity and, and uh, a place in our careers where we think we can afford, uh, and I don't mean monetarily, but actually it probably meant monetarily. We sure. um, think we need to afford to do this and get, get produced, you know. But in fact, when they first reached out to Bob Rock, they just asked him, their management company asked his manager if he could come mix it. And he said, I don't want to mix it. I want to That's produce right. it. Right. And um, and so that was that was uh, probably the introduction of the concept to them. And uh, as it turns out, it was a good thing. But if you think about where Bob Rock was at the time, um, Bob Rock had been, he had actually been in his own band for a while, and then he moved on over to the mixing and producing Do you know side the band? of things.
3: No. Uh, it was the Paolas. The Paolas. The Paolas in Canada. Uh, in fact, I'm uh, looking through my notes here if I've got it... Uh, yeah so uh they had a hit in 82 it's called eyes of a stranger gotcha and it was since it was, some mood. was he the bass player i think he was the bass player anyway yeah was that was the, the, the band he
2: was in you know year and a half in the life of when they talk about it when they bring out that record and they say is this that's, that's the, the one. one yeah that's gotcha the one. yes sweet there you are yeah so um yeah, so like Bob Rock had, had a, a series of kind of successes with some other major bands, and so uh, I've got a I've, we've got we're gonna play some a, a couple of clips from them in just a second. But leading up to the Black album, now I'm only taking the first like the the I'm sorry the most recent three albums prior to that. So he had quite yeah. a few others, but just starting with the Cult, Sonic Temple. Okay, this was April 1989. It was when it was released, which means it was recorded you know just you know six you know nine months prior to that. So we had the Cult, Sonic Temple, and then Motley Crue, Doctor Feelgood. Now, there is one or two inserted in here that I did not write down, but I was I was writing down ones that I recognize. There was a few like there was one like, a group called Blue Mountain. Have y'all heard of them?
1: Uh, not the Blue Mountain from Oxford. That's another Blue Mountain
2: band. Yeah. So not that, not them. Uh, but anyway, there was another band. So I'm not, these aren't in true chronological. There are one or two mixed in here. But in terms of the big names that most yeah. everybody would recognize, so the Cult, Sonic Temple, and that that's where we got Sun God and Fire Woman. Songs like that. It's an awesome record. Yeah, That's right. Awesome. Uh, Motley Crue, Doctor Good. So that was released September 1989. <laughs> David Lee Roth, A Little Ain't Enough. January 91 was when it was released. And then finally, Metallica, Metallica, The Black Album. August 1991 was when it was released. Um, they probably spent the longest in the studio on that one. So just, I mean, if you're just doing the math on this, this is just an 18 month or so period in which they had he had gone from the Cult, Motley Crue, David Lee Roth, and Metallica. And it was during that time, I mean, of course, think about think about how this is playing out, right? I'm not saying that these were their peers, but they certainly must have been respected musicians, right, or, or respected bands at the time. And so if you see Motley Crue has an insane hit with Dr. Feelgood, right? I mean, the album, not just the, sing, the, not the song. Um, you could probably argue that Colton and, and David Lee Roth had big hits with that, but I mean, to me, I, I'm sure it was Motley... I mean, if you're just making me bet money, what... What caused them to pick that? They, they could not have ignored that huge success of that album. And so um, as a result, they brought Bob Rock in and worked on the album. Do you want to cue up that thing? So what we're yeah. about to play here, this is a this is about 20 seconds or 30 seconds from each one of those four songs. I'm sorry, the four albums that I just mentioned, and I'm totally blanking on what I put on there. I think I put Firewoman on there first, and then it's uh, Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood, the song Dr. Feelgood, David Lee Roth, Little Lane Enough, and then finally Metallica and her Sandman and what i want y'all to listen to this is bob rock was really developing a signature sound throughout this period that one of my buddies who's in a band with me shane jones i'm i'm, I'm in a band called radio maze you can check us out at radiomaze.com Come, with a z, with a, a z. A with a z yeah radio maze not like the corn um corn with a corn, c corn with a k <laughs> yeah. uh and so i uh, will play at your wedding or something uh but anyway so the bass player in my in my band he's a he's a big you know music fan of course like the rest of us are um, he told me about this, and I was like, this this whole concept of, like, the thunder, you know, like, like, thunder drums, or, like, thunder toms, or whatever, and it really is evident in Metallica and her Sandman, when you hear that just, I mean, the drums are just almost coming out of your speakers at you, but y'all listen to this, this is going to be about a two-minute and 20-second clip, starting mm-hmm. with the cult, listen for the toms, and then listen over the progression of the four songs, how big the toms, and not just the toms, but the drums got as a part of their core sound. It's really cool how you can hear. It's really cool how you can hear the um, the evolution of that sound and where he was going with it. And, and Bob Rock mentioned, you know, when he first got connected with uh, with Metallica, the reason why he wanted to produce them and not mix them, he's he saw them live a couple of times. This is on like the classic albums, whatever that VH1 classic albums thing is. Um, and I'm sure I read it somewhere else as well. But he just mentioned that uh, I've seen y'all live, and y'all still haven't captured that. <clears throat> excuse me y'all haven't captured that yet on an album i want to help y'all do that and and step one of that was making everything sound as big as possible and you can tell where he was at in his journey as a producer and and kind of understanding audio engineering and kind of his not even that but maybe just more of a philosophy you can tell the progression and like i can't imagine it getting any bigger than inner sandman you know right. than that that the thundering toms that were happening
3: just then so yeah yeah he- yeah absolutely kyle um there was consternation inside the thrash community because in addition to all those records that you mentioned that bob rock had had a hand in if you look further back he was a producer for slippery for, uh, slippery when wet mm-hmm. bon jovi's record and everybody on the inside of thrash was like bob rock the Bon Jovi guy, right? You guys, you guys lost your mind. Well, it's no, like, it's
2: like Michael Keaton, the like the Mister Mom guy being Batman. Yeah, you gotta, gotta be Batman kidding me. me. What? <laughs> so
3: yeah, I mean, it's a similar thing, right? Um, but what's really interesting about about Bob Rock and and how people will say that Bob Rock changed Metallica. Well, Bob Rock is on record, and he said that no, those guys had changed their mind before they made the trip to Vancouver to meet with him. Um, in particular, it was Lars. He says we wanted to. I'm not going to directly quote Lars, but he's like, we're going to cram Metallica down everybody's throats. So when they met up with Bob Rock, they knew they wanted to break into that next level and get some radio play and make Metallica worldwide at that point, Mm -hmm. open it wide open. And I really think that it was this record with Bob Rock looking for that, you know, that three minute construct. that's more in line with say AC, DC or the misfits as opposed to where they were with justice for All to really bring that thing to the forefront. So, yeah, they were
1: getting into the Rust Dream Theater. Oh, yeah, they were okay. they,
3: dude, they were about to get out in orbit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, with some of the, the stuff that was going on. I feel on, like so. they were two minutes away per song, oh,
2: yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and,
3: and, and exactly. And Or used to say that, uh, or when they were, he was reflecting on this album, he said that it, one of the measures they used for justice was how long the song was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about the groove anymore, and it wasn't about the thunder and the energy. It was about, well, how long is it? Yeah, that's no way to write a
2: record. Well, that's actually the way I assess records now. Like, I'm not going to buy a record that the average song is under three and a half minutes. Don't care. Don't don't even want to see it. You know. <laughs> but I love Prague, so <laughs> yeah, I don't. Kind of yeah. oh, okay, guy. you like that? I didn't know that. Okay, now we.
3: Yeah. Okay, now we know where you're coming from, correct? Right, yep. Super. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it w- it was a big deal that they chose him because Metallica had kind of made a name for themselves trying not to be like those other bands. You know, there's the famous video of them throwing the darts at Kip Winger. You mm-hmm. know, between that and Beavis and Butthead, that ruined Winger. And, <laughs> Winger! And if you listen to, like, Bo Hill, who produced those Winger albums, he says they're, that Winger's the hands-down, the most talented musicians I've ever worked with. And he's mm-hmm. worked with some of the all-time greats. Uh, you know, and I heard Lars say, he said, we did not like Dr. Feelgood, we like how it sounded. Right. Mm-hmm. Correct. And we wanted the guy to make to make us that sound. Because we knew we were about to go to shorter songs and less well, complicated songs. And I don't, think, I don't think they initially the goal was to let, let's sell out. I think they wanted shorter songs that weren't as complicated. And mm-hmm. I think this was almost a byproduct of that.
2: Yeah, and I mean, they, they recognized that they needed production help. You know, it's pretty clear. But I mean, if, if, if Feel Good was a 10... Like Inner Sandman, or like the Black Album was an 11, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. in terms of like that, where where Bob Rock was versus where he took them. Um, and you know, before we leave the topic of about like how kind of fans felt about this, like I felt me as a fan, I came in at the perfect time because I didn't have this entrenched history of like coming from Kill 'Em All or, or the people who started after Kill 'Em All, the people who started at the next track, and then you know, I didn't feel that I had that. Like, I got into them right around one. I was like, what else do these guys have? Oh, Fade to Black. That's really cool, you know? (laughs) And then I hear this other, it's like, Master of Puppets, Battery. Like, this is an amazing band. And so when they brought this other album out, I didn't think of it, of course, I'm like 11 at the time or 12. I didn't think of it as like, man, they are really sold out. I was just like, and I also didn't think like, man, they're so much more accessible now. I just heard it and had a a visceral response. I'm like, man, this is badass, you know? And so I feel like there's a number of fans, if you got into them, a little bit earlier than, than maybe we all did, that you might have that feeling. But the same thing happened with Ride the Lightning. When Ride the Lightning came out with Fade to Black, that was controversial. I, I may that, Maybe that's a little bit too heavy-handed, but, I mean, that was something different, and they got flack from their fans who had been fans prior to that. And Fade to Black is, to me, a core Metallica song. That is what Metallica sounds like to me. But if you're a fan of Kill of, um, Kill 'em All... And are you a fan since Kill 'Em All? And then you hear this Fade to Black thing. Well, maybe that's not your thing. That that's not Thrash. But to me, Fade to Black is just as much Metallica as the Black album. You know, uh, Deep Purple had the same problem with Child in Time. You know, they called flack for that. So anyway, just just some other. There's always going to be those fans who do that sort of thing. Um, and I'm I'm sure that I've done it as well. But to me, the Black album fits. It's a in their history now. It's a perfect turning point. You know.
1: I try not to be that guy.
2: I try not to be that guy either, but it's hard though. It's know? real big it in the Black
1: Crowes community to hate everything that Mark Ford didn't play on, right? Uh, but I like I like everything. Um, all right, so the the album comes out August twelfth, nineteen ninety one, and it's uh, it has sold sixteen million copies in America alone, and it is the best selling album of the SoundScan era. And I was telling, I was explaining this to Kyle beforehand. He was asking me about that, so. <clears throat> like in the 80s, when they say something sold a million copies, it didn't necessarily sell a million copies. It shipped a million. So it, it wasn't actually right. – they didn't actually have the sales. Once they started putting the barcodes and everybody had the scanners, then they could tell how many actual units were sold. And so they, come, they found out that a lot of these people that they thought were selling a lot more albums weren't. And once they have started actually tracking album sales – this is the, the greatest selling album of all time, and I was telling Kyle earlier, since it's been released, there's never been a week go by that it has not sold at least a thousand copies.
3: That's unbelievable. So like mm-hmm. even
1: now, awesome. even now when nobody buys records, it still sells a thousand copies. So I mean they they are just rolling in royalties, mm-hmm. yeah. and unlike some bands like oh we sold five million records, you sold it in your first two years, you know that's nothing now they've just got this like stream Mm -hmm. steady stream of um, of income from it All right, like I said it was like we said it was produced by Bob Rock it depending on who you talk to it had either five or six singles uh, that were released for it and Rolling Stone ranks it as the 255th greatest album of all time Uh, which uh, I'd like to see the 254
2: oh yeah that's what I was just thinking I bet
1: somebody's gonna have every dead gum Beatles album on there I'm out Uh, yeah (laughs) About uh, yeah, I, I think Shiver have this comment. You're anti-Eagles and anti-Beatles
3: and Tom Waits. Ugh, fist bump.
1: Well, fist bump. <laughs> we won't shake hands in the age yeah. of COVID. But Jeez. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I
3: guess I'm, I'm left
1: out, out look, here. Look, let me tell you what. I posted something on <laughs> Facebook one time about hating the Eagles. Yeah. I, I thought I was going to have to change my address. Oh yeah. No, I, yeah. Mean, I, I got pounced. I don't
3: understand it. it. Yeah, you talked about Jesus, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dude, I'm I'm not an Eagles guy. In fact, I'm the anti-Eagles guy. I'm, I'm in your camp, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Eagles. I'm with you. I, I
1: fly that anti-Eagles flag. I, but not proudly, to,
2: like, I, not to, to turn this into a four-hour podcast. And I'm not, I'm not crazy for the Eagles, and I'm not crazy for the Beatles. I don't regularly listen to either one of them. But one thing you cannot deny is their ability to write songs, right? And not simple, poppy songs, like in some cases, very complex songs. Like Hotel California, It's very hard to a, argue
3: against. It's basically a bad Yelp review. Ooh, mm-hmm. it is. That's true. That's like, that's
2: that's funny. But it's still not critical commentary of the song. It's just funny. It's an observation. But I'm just saying, like, like Sergeant Pepper's. There's so much awesome prog music that would not be around today if it wasn't for Sergeant Pepper's, right? But even before that, if it was, I don't debate was, their influence. It was the Beach Boys.
1: You I, know? I, I, I give it. That. I mean, everybody can't Pets be wrong out. as far as like influence. So I mean, like, I I I, I just don't like listening to it. No.
2: I get it. Well, I don't like listening to Elvis. Yeah. Or Bob Dylan. And I named my kid after Bob Dylan. So, Did you really? I didn't call him Bob, but yeah. <laughs> Robert. Dude, did you call, is, is your Dylan. son's name Zimmerman? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Come here, Zimmerman
1: no he doesn't have a flow to it. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's get in the nuts and bolts, guys. Uh, let's, let's break it down track by track. Uh, Kyle, as everybody knows, is, is a guitar player and has been for a long time. Mm-hmm. Chipper, I found out today, uh, plays a little and uh david can make gc and d on a good day so uh uh their um (laughs) their contributions to the musical discussion is going to be a lot better than mine so what we're going to do is we're just going to go through the the tracks and i'm just going to rotate amongst us who gets to uh talk about it first so since uh this is chipper's first show the biggest song of metallica's career the opening track enter sandman
3: yeah uh well i dude i think you summed it up it's I think for your average person that knows about Metallica or about music, it's Inner Sandman. I mean, this is, this is their line in the sand, so to speak, pardon the pun, that this is, this is the dividing line. And I right. think for a lot of folks, it is Inner Sandman. Um, what's interesting about it is this was actually the first riff that was created that would become this record. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was Kirk in a, in a hotel room, uh, I think it was in Europe maybe, Um, 3 a.m., he says. We don't know. Middle of the night, so he says. uh, With the tape recording, he plays it for Lars. And uh, with a little bit of tweaking and rearrangement, because uh, I think there was some uh, consternation with the tail, as it were. Yes. uh, The first iteration was do-do-do-do-do,
2: do-do-do-do-do-do, over and over again. So four times that. And Lars heard that, and it's like, no, can you change that a little bit?
3: Twist it. Yeah, Yeah, right. So we have uh, Kirk to thank for that riff, and ultimately for the song. So... um, yeah, just unbelievable, um, and this was the first single, as it should it be, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know I'm sure we'll get into it when we start talking about the other tracks about what was uh, the front runner, if you will, yeah, uh, before Inner Sandman for the first single. But um, like I said, I think this is probably the most influential track on the whole record. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: I mean, excellent song construction, excellent solo. Um, this is one that we play in my in my Cover band that I've got. It's a fun song to play. Which I'm gonna be. I'm gonna brag on you. Yeah. Your guitar player nails the solo. Richard yeah. Anderson. Check us out. Radiomaze.com. All one word. With all lowercase. If that matters. If you're if you're over fifty, you don't have to put in things in lowercase or uppercase into the URL. Um, or maybe fifty five. I don't. I don't know what age that starts. But I have that conversation with my mom on a weekly basis. I'm like mm-hmm. it does not matter, mom. <laughs> but yeah. So we. Um, uh, Richard Anderson. He killed that solo. Um, and uh, we've actually got that posted on our website, the video of that just one clip posted. Um, I'm the guitarist on the left-hand side of the stage, but I also play keys. But on that song, I'm playing guitar because there is no, there are no keys. Um, in terms of things that I'd like to add to that, so th- in terms of writing credit, this, this song clocks in at 5 minutes and 34 seconds. Writing credit is something I like to pay attention to because that matters. It matters in terms of royalties. It matters in terms of... Um, you know, who's really contributed to the song versus came in later and then added some fills to it or whatever, um, or added some kind of pickup spots. So in this case, it's Kirk Hammett, Lars, and James Hetfield. And a lot of times, actually across this album, there's a decent mix, but usually it's Lars and James that are the two kind of um, head writers uh, for for the tracks, at least for this album. But I will mention the few times where that's not the case. Uh, but yeah I don't have much else to add to that it's just such such an incredible riff and it's so simple yet so iconic um, you almost couldn't get any more simplistic than than that I mean even was, I could
1: play it at one point
2: Yeah oh yeah absolutely but um but they they managed to add enough variety to it and they change you know it starts in E and then they change it to F sharp and so it kind of changes the sound of it when it's in the when it's in the chorus or the pre-chorus and so it's simple, yet they were able to add enough flavor to it and an awesome uh, solo to it to make it just an, an absolutely iconic song. Yeah. This
1: is the first time that um, Kirk Hammett was introduced to the Y Pedal on an uh, album, right, The song? Um, I don't really remember it on anything else.
2: You know, I don't either, but I've got to be honest, I don't want to go out on a limb and say that, but it's certainly prominent on this, on this one. I mean, right. from the very opening line, you hear... Um, you hear him, and not the opening line. The opening line is the the rhythm part, but uh, that James is playing. But you hear this little. Uh, I don't even. I can't even simulate that. <laughs> I don't know. I know exactly. As long what you as just saying wow, yes. yeah. Um, but uh, but so yeah, from the very opening uh, a part of that, there's a little lead lick that kind of lets you know like this is about to be in the song later too, you know. I think we call that foreshadowing.
1: Well, and the video was one of the more popular videos of the '90s, um, and
2: uh, kind of was kind of strobe re- lights were popular. Was that the strobe light one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strobe lights were yeah. very popular uh, for a, a while there. Yeah, go yeah, to the skating yeah. rink and there's strobe lights. Metallica video strobe lights. Yeah.
1: Ultimately, the song the song wound up being a lot about nightmares, but originally it was about crib death.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: like, if I ask you, like, what's your favorite uh-huh. crib death song? What's your second favorite one?
2: Ooh, I've actually got one. Is this not fair? You well,
1: you ruined the joke, Kyle. I no, know. I'm no,
2: sorry. Dream no fun. Dreaming Tree, Dave Matthews Band. Really? Yes. Never heard of her. Yeah. Uh, I don't like Dave Matthews either. Well, Fist I'm bump. sorry. Uh, now I'm I'm actually happy I ruined your joke. Now. <laughs> 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 Dave Matthews Band is incredible in concert, and that's one of those bands like just like Kid Rock. You do not have to like Kid Rock to have a great time at a Kid Rock concert.
1: Worst concert I've ever been to. Really? Second, no second worst. Yeah.
2: There, was his voice messed up? Uh, He got sick. Yeah, that's that. Like, out of the seven or eight times I've seen him, it was like six times he he was something was wrong with his voice. Um, Still put on a great show though. Anyway, so Dave Matthews Band's the same way.
1: Even if you don't listen to music or aren't a music fan, you know what this song is. I mean, it's quickly overtaking like Thunderstruck and Rocky like a hurricane to be the sports song that you're going to hear at a. at a, at a sporting event. I support all of that. Perhaps, Perhaps only
2: rivaled true. by Welcome to the Jungle. You know, like when you yeah. hear that playing over a hockey rink, somebody's you know somebody about to, to get, get, get their bang. ass kicked. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: I, I think it's Virginia Tech where the entire student body does the jumping up, down, like, I think, like, waving a towel to, to the intro to this. You can go on YouTube and find it. It's like if I was playing football, I'd be ready to kill somebody. You, <laughs> I saw that. Um, but th- the biggest song of their career <clears> – <throat> it was the right decision to be the first choice. We'll get to what the first choice was originally going to be in a minute. Yeah. But uh, if this song's never released, do they, are they as big as they are now? Mm, I think so. You think there's still a stadium act?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Shepard?
3: I have my doubts. Yeah. You know, I want to. Arenas for sure. Yeah, maybe arenas. Uh, I don't think, maybe it's not as universal Maybe metallica. That's an interesting thought, though. That you know? is interesting how you could hinge so much on because they wouldn't one have cut. the
1: crossover song. Yeah, that's true. none of this other stuff is like crossover worthy
3: No, yeah, you're absolutely right, dude.
2: Uh, well, hang on now. So nothing else matters. I mean that you can get you can fill a stadium with one really good ballady kind of song, and yeah, then but, literally nobody else will know any but, of the other songs. But
1: nothing else matters. It's not going to be like part of like uh-uh. the culture. No.
2: No, no, no. I just mean, like, how can you fill up a stadium with one ballad song, and you, you can. The 80s showed us that.
0: Yeah, Poison know? did that.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so God. I'm going to take the next well, one. Well, before or? we no. leave this one, uh, just because it's relevant to this, the B-side of the single for, was Stone Cold Crazy. And when you kind of, when you kind of trace back, like, where. And the purpose of this podcast is not to talk about the origins of thrash metal, but when you trace back some of the origins, Stone Cold Crazy by Queen... Which Metallica ultimately covered on their um, was this on their, it was on Garage Inc. But was it on the? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember either. I seem to think that it was uh, on the. Well, it was on Garage Inc. But it was on the. You know, there's different versions. There was like the Garage Tape and the. You know, all, Garage mm-hmm. Inc. The double album was a formation of several EPs that right. they would released. I just don't remember which order this one was. But anyway, was. some 1973 Queen some credit this song or that song rather with um, kind of the the. Not the genesis of thrash, but the first kind of like um, what's that rap song? The um, the one that kind of everyone uh, credits as being the first rap song. Um, am I, I'm drawing a blank on it. I'm sorry.
1: Is it the one that's
2: like really bad? The
1: guy's like ah, it is Yes,
2: yes. Yeah. It's like kind of staccato singing. So yeah. like when you listen to it now, you're like, well, okay, I get it. Like I understand how that's the first rap song technically i suppose just because the way you're saying that or singing that but it's not really the way we think of it today i'm thinking about this song in that same way i'll have to look that up and i'll just tell you all in a little bit when i figure it out um but i think of this in the in the same way was stone cold crazy a thrash metal song no but can you name me something before that that sounds more thrash metal than that you know I, i'm having trouble it does have up like kind of like the pace and the sound of the frantic pace yeah so, I mean, that's one that was got credited with it in, oh, I'm sorry, 1974 was the Queenstone called Crazy. But while we're talking about that, some others that got credited with the Thrash Metal Origins was a Black Sabbath, Symptom of the Universe, 1975, Diamond Head, Am I Evil, uh, which is also on Garage Inc. that was 1980. So, I'm sure as you get closer to Am I Evil, and we we talked about Breadfan, which also made it onto Garage Inc. Garage Inc. is probably a nice case study in... What were they into, you know, and what what kind of helped them? What helped create this genre, which is thrash metal. So anyway, I I just wanted to take us down that very soft side street to mention that because it seemed relevant to the band's history.
1: All right. So the second song is actually I'm gonna take this one because it's actually my favorite song on the album. So if you go see Metallica, you <clears throat> know, if you want heavy, Metallica gives you heavy, baby. So <laughs> let's play let's play a quick clip of uh, Sad But True. Like I said, this is my favorite song off the album. <laughs> Kyle, like I said, I'm not a musician, but they tune down for that, right?
2: Uh, Metallica is pretty much standard tuning. Are they okay? Yeah, okay. I, I don't know about that song. Yeah, that no, I,
1: read,
3: I read that one is drop D. It maybe, yeah, yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, so uh, as far as like a heavy song, it's obviously the heaviest song on here. It's not thrash. It's a, uh, it's if you ask me, it's kind of almost like a forerunner to groove metal. I mean, this song has a groove to it yeah, that it you can that you can just yeah. get on and ride. Um, and like we said, it, I always think it's kind of funny that, you know, they always introduce it as, you want heavy, Metallica gives you heavy, baby. And, and it's pretty much every time you see them play that. Um, really, like I said, it's my favorite song on here. Uh, obviously, Kid Rock basically copied it for, uh, what was mm-hmm. the song? The American Badass. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, it, it was it was everywhere there in the 90s yep. in the early part of 2000. Uh, but it was a single. It didn't really chart all that well. Um, I think if you were talking to the average person about Metallica after inner Sandman and nothing else matters, this would be the one that they know. Mm -hmm. You probably, yeah. All right. Uh, So Chipper, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah.
3: Honestly, man. Um, a a lot of what you've already said, I was like, you know, I think the kid rock sample that he used at the track, I think that's, that's important, at least culturally. It shows a little bit of spreading his wings, uh, from Metallica out into, you know, some crossover you know, rock rap genre, which kind of interesting. Um, and then also the live show, Metallica gives it to you heavy. But remember, that's also when they're like, "Who's, who in the audience is it? Their first Metallica show, right?" And you're know, the hands go in the air, and then this is for you, you know. Yeah. And I think it's cool. I love this one. It's, um, it, it's not that you know, like the Afterburners and Go, uh, like Master of Puppets, thrash metal. I wouldn't call this a thrash song,
1: but it's heavy metal. But it's
3: heavy metal, mm-hmm. man. There's no question about it. Um, but it's not thrash. Borderline Sludge. Uh, I think this is a, this is not the same area code as sludge, man. I'm, I love sludge and this ain't it, uh, but this is good. There's no question it about could, it. it. Could, I really this like could
1: it. Be a, this could have been a black Sabbath song.
3: It could have been. Yeah. It's lumbery. It's, I think that's the right way to put it too, man. I think it's got a Sabbath feel to it because it's got that groove and it's got that lumber and it's just, it's just heavy and it's thick. Yeah. Uh, and it's awesome. And man, you know, I wish, I wish there was a video or at least a picture of this. Cause David, when you started playing the track, everybody just kind of got the face. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. The
2: face, the, I did the air drums. Yeah. And, I mean, come on, man. It, what a
3: good one. And, I mean, it's great. And Kyle, this probably is not all that hard
1: to play, is it?
2: Um, I mean, maybe except for solo or something, but no, this is a very easy one to play as far as the, the main riff goes. Um, it's really, I mean, you mentioned groove metal. I mean, it's, if you're not in the groove, it's hard to play, but if you're in that groove, it is a relatively easy song to play compared to some of the others. When you mentioned it was the heaviest song, it actually kind of took me by surprise, and I, I looked through the list. I don't, I don't know what would be heavier, and I don't know how you define heavy. It certainly sounds huge. You know, it sounds, um, it certainly sounds huge, there's a big sound to it. Is it the heaviest? I don't know, like Struggle Within is kind of heavy. There's a lot of, like, that's more thrash metal to me than this one. This, I think you hit it right. This is groove metal to me. Um I don't know if it's the heaviest, though. But it's still... It's one of my favorite songs on the album. This is also another one of their singles. It was actually the last single... Well, depending on who you ask. Of the five (laughs) singles that were released officially, um, this was one of the last ones that was released. Uh, And so uh, the B-side for this was So What... Which uh, was also off Garage Inc. And uh, that was one of the ones if you were a teenage or like a preteen and like you could just kind of giggle because it was like, it's a funny song, so what? You know, you just got to go listen to it. Very a lot non- of weird things going on. A lot so of weird what? stuff. Yeah. Yes.
1: Very non PC.
2: No. Nope. You want, you,
1: if you were 13, you wouldn't want your parents to walk in on that one. No, which is nope. why it was
2: deeply satisfying. You know, as a, let's see, like 11, 12. Oh, no. I, yeah, I guess it was about that all. Um, that one and Getting the Ring by Guns N' Roses. Those are my two that like were like just. Fun to listen to because I knew I was being bad, you know.
1: I had a friend whose dad walked in on him listening to Get in the Ring, and he took it out of the CD player, and he, like, broke it. And uh, he was like, David's got it. He listens to it. His mother hasn't said anything to him about it. Uh, and this is, like, the before worst. the age of cell phone. He goes, well, I'm going to give her a call. Yep. And he gets to the phone Dired first of you out, He calls me. He goes, dude, I I... I, I your, your mother's, he's, he's like, Your mother's about to come take your, use your illusion CDs. And I'm like, What are you talking about? And he's like, he's like, I got busted listening to Get in the Ring and my dad's going to call your mom. And I immediately went and got him. I remember this this day. I got him and I took him outside and buried him underneath my basketball goal for a night just to make sure.
2: Oh, wow. And you know what?
1: His dad never called my mom.
2: Oh, that's great. That uh, was it, a it, very typical and, parental and threat. And what's
1: so funny is his, uh, it's, it's, it's my, it's, it's a friend of mine. He would actually died last year, but his dad, uh, they're all the whole family are brilliant musicians. Like, can play numerous instruments and don't read music. They mm-hmm. just have have the touch. Well, his dad is in like a bluegrass band right now in a rock band, and uh, his uh, his son, who's now passed, went to see him play, and they were playing. They actually played a Guns N' Roses song. He goes, "You remember those CDs you wrote?" And he goes, "Yeah, that's uh, you're playing you're playing Guns N' Roses." And his dad's <laughs> just kind of like, "All right, that's know? pretty great." Nice. But uh, we
2: well, related to the Guns N' Roses. Before we leave that topic, um, so. I was getting into Guns N' Roses right around the time that Tipper Gore was getting into my business, right? Mm. And so, I mean, I think I told a piece of this story, perhaps, on the the Use Your Illusions podcast. Didn't we do... We did Use Illusions, right? No, we did
1: uh, did Chinese Democracy. Oh, that's... Well,
2: we talked about illusions on there because we talked about making it more simplistic Mm -hmm. and how to cut it down. That's right. But anyway, so uh, perhaps I didn't. Um, But I got into Guns N' Roses right around the time they started slapping parental advisory uh, stickers on the labels. And... Um, what that, that
1: did more to sell records than anything.
2: Oh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. In that, it hindered me for a little while, but I was, I got, I got creative at Sound Shop and I found that they had a shipment that came in without the sticker. And so my little, you know, probably thirteen-year-old self walked up the counter with something I knew without question should have had a sticker on it, and I put it up there like I was buying c- cigarettes underage, and I was just like, they're about to ask for my ID, and like. I couldn't grow a mustache if I wanted to. Like, I mean, this was like way before it was that time. And I uh, got out of there scot-free and fantastic. So what I found out later is, because that was kind of an addition to the process until they started actually printing them on the CD things. As a part of the, I'm reading a book now called, I think it's called like How Music Became Free or something like that. I was talking about the advent of the MP3 and 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 those sorts of things. But uh, part of the story goes into Polygram Records and the actual plant where they're pressing C D like not pressing CDs, but they're creating the CDs and putting the labels and all that. And it was one person's job all day long before they had the machinery to do it was just to pull a sticker off. I mean this is like I love Lucy, like the chocolates are getting away from you sort of scene. And so before you pull the you had to pull the sticker off and stick it on the front of each of the C D labels right and th- this plant could process at one time quarter of a million half a million a day and so depending on what cd it was so anyway point is i found a batch without that that's how i acquired Future illusion 2 i believe it was so anyway a little bit of side story the little things bit of we had to
1: go through to listen to music
2: no kidding right now these kids just have spotify right they have the twitter i don't know it's just do they can is, log into do, their accounts each week I have a Twitter account just because the band has one, and I have to kind of keep up with it a little bit because I'm band dad. I keep up with, like, the, I'm, the administrative, <laughs> I'm the administrative guy in the band. Um, so I've got one for that reason, but I don't actively tweet, and I usually don't get on social media really too much to, to comment. I, I troll.
1: You probably have a, a better life than the rest of us.
2: Hmm. Oh, it's a time suck. It's absolutely a time suck, and it's worthless. All right, Kyle. The third song is holier than thou. Holier than thou. So this was the one that we've been alluding to. This was the one that everybody in the band, except for Lars, wanted to have as the single. And I get it. Like if you ignore the rest of the songs,
1: and didn't Bob Rock wanted this? Bob Rock, yeah. Bob Rock wanted this. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It was, yeah. And this is the one time—not um, the one time, but I mean, this is like we can give credit to Lars for just seeing the future, basically. Now, would if this have been a terrible song to put out? No, I think it's a very good song, and I, I totally understand the reason, the build on this song, the build and that tension that finally gets released when the when the verse comes in, dun 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 dun. I mean, you can hear it bouncing between the stereo image, just is great. Um, I think it ultimately would have been the wrong one to release though, but I get it. I understand the rationale. I understand what they were thinking about. Um... So I think it's a solid song. Um, I don't think there's a bad song on this album, personally, so you'll probably hear me say that a good bit. Uh, Written by Headfield and Ulrich as well. This one's on the shorter side. In fact, this is the shortest song on the album at 3 minutes and 48 seconds. This is one you mentioned Bon Jovi earlier, Chipper. So um, this has got a talk box at the very beginning, you know, and this was kind of a carryover from... Um, not a carry. I shouldn't say carryover, but part of Bob Rock's influence was to just to expose the band to different stuff. So, as far as I'm aware, this is Kirk's first. Uh, this is the debut of a talk box on an out on a Metallica album. Um, and so, it was. You know, part of it was just to add a little variety. And to me, it's perfectly placed. I think it sounds fantastic, and it's not overdone. It's not Peter Frampton. Um, you know, you know. It, to me, it just it just it adds some augmentation to the to the to the sound of the guitar so anyway love the song um i will say i don't like when i when i pop the album in so to speak or and and take it for a spin i don't start on number three i usually start on number one like so i don't and i don't even ever think to like hey let's listen to holier than thou right now having said that still great song
3: big fan uh this one it it's I'm, I'm, Kyle, I'm with you. I'm not going to seek this one out necessarily, mm-hmm. but man, when you're listening to this record front to back, you get to spot three and it's good. It's a necessary it's, piece. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Um, you know, I'm not going to beat the dead horse on what you've already brought up, but I'll tell you this, though. Um, in line with the Talk Box discussion and, and Bob Rock pushing folks into to things, I think the biggest thing that Bob Rock did for the band as far as trying something new was getting James to go to voice lessons
0: mm-hmm.
3: and took him to the next level lyrically and the ability just to project that voice, polish it, uh, because that set him up for this record and everything that's been down track since. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may, I think it, it's a more matured, more polished sound, and I think there's a lot of magic in that, and I think it really comes through on every track on this record.
2: Absolutely. If you want a case study and in, in the influence that Bob Rock had on the band, seriously, go listen to Injustice for All, whole thing and then or you can pick out one song and i don't care what song you pick out just pick out one and then pick out one song um from the black album that is the influence of bob rock period there there wasn't even enough time that had passed to make the band of all really right you know like i mean that is truly the influence of bob rock and it's profound
1: yeah this is one that if you could that one of the few on here that i could see being on a previous metallica album uh, if I had to, if I had to guess, it's it's yeah. it's got a little bit of that tenacity and aggressiveness that some of the earlier stuff. Uh, I like it. Um, I don't skip it. There's only one song on here. I skip. We'll get to it later. Uh, but uh, it's just not. I'm um, like you. Like if it comes on, I'm not going to change it. But I'm never going to. go, oh, I need to listen to Holier than now. Um, and this is kind of. It kind of has a theme that that plays along. Like I don't think James Hetfield is at all against religion. Um, I think he's against people. Using religion to manipulate people into uh, into certain situations, uh, because uh, his parents, I think, were Christian, Christian Science. Yeah. They were. Mm-hmm. Uh, member of the Christian Science movement, and so uh, he, uh, you know, he's he wrote about that on uh, Master of Puppets. He wrote about it obviously on uh, the Black Album, and, and he, you know, writes about it uh, subsequently. But um, yeah, good song. But I'm never just going to go. I want to listen to Holier Than Thou and seek that one out. So the next song Chipper is The Unforgiven. The
3: Unforgiven. Uh this one, David, it's about the solo. I mean, it's a great song. It's it's down tempo compared to where Metallica used to live in previous records. But for this one, for its spot here on this on the black album, it's all about that solo. Why don't,
1: let's listen to that solo
3: real let's quick. Do it. The story goes, uh, when Kirk first took a stab at that solo, it was completely different than what we just heard. And the rest of the band was not having it. And Bob Rock wasn't having it. And so he tinkered with it and he tried, and they had a couple more stabs at it, a couple more takes, and it still wasn't that. Uh, but then Bob Rock, paraphrasing, said, Why don't you just cut to the chase and play it like the Guitar Magazine Player of the Year? And, mm-hmm. and then now that, that you're warmed up and stuff. Yeah, that, there you go. Now that you're warmed up, and then there we there we go, and it's fantastic.
1: Well, so much of a year and a half in the life of Metallica was devoted to recording this song. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there's the video of him trying to do a solo, and you know, Lars is in the background putting his you know hands o- over his head. Um, <laughs> you know, the, Metallica for all their great music. They don't really, there's only a few solos I would say like are signature Kirk Hammett solos. And this is, I think, the the main one. I think the outro Mm -hmm. on uh, Mm one, but that's a dual, winds up being a dual solo. But he struggled with this.
2: Well, this one's far more melodic too. Like to write a thrash solo, I'm not going to say it's not difficult, but to write a melodic one where you're really thinking about what is the rest of the band doing, like what chord changes are they making and those sorts of things, that's a different level of difficulty. And one of the
1: unique things about this song is, you know, you think about when it came out and you think of ballads at the time, you think of like Bon Jovi or Poison or Def Leppard or, you know, uh, gosh, even Guns N' Roses, you know, some of their ballads. The thing was, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And you, you would have this slow build into this big, blustery, melodic chorus. Well, they do the opposite. They go heavy during the verses Mm -hmm. and light during the chorus, which is completely against the grain. And, you know, this isn't technically a true ballad in the sense that they're talking about love, which they're going to do that one in in a couple of songs. But this was the closest thing they had to a true ballad that stayed there because, like we said, Fade to Black, One, Welcome Home, Sanitarium, all started out slow, but then they turned into a thrash song. Right. This one stays the same tempo throughout the whole thing, and so this was a huge step forward for them. Um, and obviously, you know there would be the Unforgiven two and Unforgiven three, which I actually like both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, do you really? I do. Okay, I really do. Uh,
2: yeah. For song sequels, I can't speak as much to Unforgiven three because to got to be honest with you, I'm not as familiar with it. Um, I don't even know what album it came from. But Death Unfor- Magnetic. Death Magnetic. Death Magnetic. Okay, yeah. I need to. I need to go back. It's got on. a piano in it. Ah, I need to listen to that especially then. But, so I'm taking... I need to... Can I give Matt a plug? Yeah. So I'm taking piano. I'm so stoked about this. So I'm I'm a guitar player, and we talked about that a couple of times, but also been playing piano. I actually took my first piano lesson from Hartley Peavy's grandmother, or maybe it was great-grandmother. I don't know. She was old. Um, and she... I was about 17. She was teaching everybody else, like, little kids, and I, like, I drove up with a ponytail in my little pickup truck. And... Um, she was an okay teacher, but really just kind of kept me, um, kept me in practice and, and helped me kind of sight-read a little bit. And I, God bless her. Like, I took in sheet music to November Rain. and I feel like I told this on that other podcast, but that's okay. It's, it's, this is free. I mean, this mm-hmm. is free right. time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? We're not having to pay for this. Um, and so uh, I, I took in the sheet music, which was arranged for guitar. Like, so it, it mean, in other words, it only had one hand. Like, it just had the right hand if you were a piano player. And sweet lady, she would point out, like, the little notes on the on the treble clef, and she's like, okay, you put this finger here for November rain, put this finger here, this, okay, that's that. And then your left hand, well, sweetie, sweetie, there's no bass clef here, there's, there's no left hand. And I mean, I swear to God, we had the same conversation six weeks in a row. Like, every single week, I'd say yes ma'am, I know it's not. It's like, this is for guitar and so like, but I'm cool because like, it's a rock thing, so they probably just are playing an octave. So if he's playing an F sharp up here, I'll just play the octave down here. She's like, well okay, you know, it's your $2. So she charged me $2 for 30 minutes. This was 1997, so it's not like it was 1938. It's like 1997, $2 for 30 minutes, $4 for an hour. You put it in a little fishbowl when you got there. And so fast forward about 20 years, I'm now taking uh, piano lessons from Matt Slocum. And uh, he is the. Um, he's played with a number of people, but he's played with... He's currently playing with Railroad Earth. Um, he's played with... Um, Susan with, Tedeschi. Susan Tedeschi. <coughs> Excuse me. He's played with Oteil the bridge. I always... Met, when I see his name, I get it. I know he's a part of Allman Brothers, but anyway, he's played with a number of people, but he's teaching lessons right now. And I'm fortunate enough to be one of the students who got in and play with him. And he's taken my playing to a totally different level. So if you're interested in piano lessons... Theory, whatever you want to, uh, whatever you want to do around the keyboard organ, you've got to check this guy out. I'm not going to give out his personal details that way he has the liberty to take it off of his personal page. but go look up Matt Slocum, keyboardist and uh, see if he's got those posts for you to take some lessons from him. Anyway, I felt compelled to do that for my buddy Matt.
1: First of all, Matt's a super nice guy.
2: Well Matt has also been on the um State of America. State of America I, podcast. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he
1: he was a he was a piano player in the Magpie salute with Rich Robinson and Mark Oh, how Ford. did
2: I forget that one? That was ridiculous. And, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh he he will chat with me every now and he's a super nice guy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I've totally forgotten why we talked oh Unforgiven 2, when that came out, like I just thought that's a great sequel to a song. So now that I've I realize now that I probably haven't given given Death Magnetic enough listens, but um I'll have to go l- listen for the piano in that one. Uh, but in terms of songs having a sequel, this is a it's a fantastic one for for that for Unforgiven. I don't think I've got anything else to add because I took us down another. Last time was a softy tour that was Dead Man's Curve, but I think it was worth it. You know, y'all stuck with me, and I think it's gonna. I think everybody appreciated that.
1: Well, a, a, a huge song for them. It's always fun to see this one played live. That solo just gets such a good reaction, and like I think this is the definitive Kirk Hammett solo. Uh, this is the one he's probably the most known for. Mm-hmm. All right, so that leads us to the next song, Wherever I May Roam, which is uh, one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, again, another slower one um, starts with a sitar. And mm-hmm. uh, a s- gong or something. Yeah, a yeah, sitar in, um, in a Metallica song. Um, it, it, this has a lot to this is kind of like the Kiss and Cousin to Turn the Page, which they did while yep. rec- rec- uh, recording on Garage, uh, Garage oh. Day or Garage Inc., you um, know, it's about life on the road and being road dogs and all the stuff that uh, that comes with it. Um, I remember when I got into them and got into this album. They played this on the American Music Awards, and they just stuck out like a sore thumb on the American Music Awards, you know. And they all still had the long hair, and you know, that's when. Lars had that massive, was it Tama or Tama?
3: Tama. Tama, Tama. Yeah, yeah.
1: Drum kit, you know. And of course, you know, he's like wearing like the leather pants and not wearing a shirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just really stuck out on that award show. And I, w- I always loved that because like, I remember they played one on the Grammys, you know, in like 1988, 89, and they lost to Jethro Tull. That's kind of the, one of the famous things. They lost to Jethro Tull.
2: Yeah, well, that was a good metal album that he put out, though. You know. Yeah, yeah, the flute. <laughs> um, Get out of here. Anyway,
1: so th- like I said, this is one of my favorite songs. It's a great video. It's like a lot of the videos in the '80s, you know, where they it's them on the road. I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like that. I feel like Bon Jovi started that with "Wanted Dead or Alive," and they just. Oh yeah. It seems like everybody had to have a road video. But anyway, uh, a big hit for them. Uh, big hit and uh, one of the one of the, the best songs on the album, in my opinion.
2: I agree. This is also another one of the singles. Um, and you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, this was their Turn the Page. Uh, and it makes perfect sense. If you listen to Turn the Page, you listen to that. Um, and I didn't even think about it, but yeah, you're right. Dead or Alive, this was this was their version of that. So nothing else to add. Fantastic song. Uh, you know, to me, for it to be a pop song, and I'm using that in the sense of it's a popular song, not like a Miley Cyrus kind of thing. Uh, coming in at 6 minutes and 44 seconds, like that's like seven minutes might be proggy, like i don't know you know this is kind of teasing into some earlier
3: days as far as that goes Shepard, what a I, you know this one's near and dear to my heart because this is my first exposure to metallica was this one track and uh the the feel that you mentioned with the centaur and the way that it opens it's kind of cool you know it gets a little bit of different feel to it that you wouldn't necessarily associate with metallica so it brings something different to it um and then of course they named the tour wherever we may roam. I mean, you get a little bit of mileage out of that, so it's paying for itself, right? Um, yeah, man, I'm a fan. I think it's a great one. Uh, definitely highlight on this record for me. Anyway, probably top two, top three, maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. They don't play it as much as you would think they would,
1: no. uh, which is kind of, uh, which I've always thought is kind of odd. Um does it get the, the treatment on every tour like it
2: you know and i was i, I wasn't sure where i was going to mention this but you know a lot of this album this w- album was very produced i guess i should have mentioned it when i was talking about what production is like compared to some of their earlier albums they can play their earlier songs um using the same instrumentation that they did in the studio because it was just like two guitars a bass and a drum like they didn't really have anything outside of that and if you think about like um, you know Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, when they go play that, like there's all kind of stuff they've got to bring to the table, whether it's backing tracks or sound effects or things like that. But it's still elements. If you had to, if you took them out of the album, they don't sound right. Oh, I'm sorry, you took them out of the mix in a live setting, they don't sound right. And to me, a lot of the Black Album doesn't sound quite right when played live. Now, not every song. There's some songs that sound perfectly fine. Inner Sandman sounds perfectly fine, but this one. It's a 12-string bass, right? Not that you can't take that out on tour, but, I mean, you don't see that. That that that, that first opening pop of the bass, that's, that's right. what that is, right? And then you've got the sitar. Well, they're... I've never seen them play a sitar. They just play it higher on the guitar neck, something like the, that. Actually,
1: the, they, the opening is always a backing track.
2: Oh, is not I I'm not... A, yeah, all that, but that would make perfect sense. But to, I think that's what you would have to have on a highly produced album. But to me, when I heard... I think it was 2012. It was the 20th anniversary when I saw... Um, it was some concert, and I'm forgetting where it is now. But they played the entire Black album, not in order. They actually kind of front loaded it with the next songs we're about to talk about, and then back loaded it with kind of the, the hits from the album. But a lot of them, to me, didn't carry over very well, simply because they lost some production value in it, and also some of the backing vocals. You could tell they just weren't. That's not what they really do. But every you know, people got onto Jason for having any backing vocals at all, and Robert Tr- Trujillo, probably same thing. You know, but anyway. Um, that's all I've got to say about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, great song. All right, so the last uh, song on the first side, Kyle, is Don't Tread on
2: Me. Don't Tread on Me. So this is where you get, um, this is on the album cover, believe it or not. You might have to hold it sideways in the light, but there's a little curled-up timber rattlesnake on the on the thing, and that actually comes from the Gadsden flag. It's a historical American flag uh, that came from 1778. You'll have to look it up because there's a whole really interesting history about that. But, uh, but I'll give you a very brief, just hopefully non-boring 10-second version of it. Ben Franklin had uh, came up with like a, the 13 colonies, which was a snake, snake cut into 13 pieces, and it said, join or die. And so the flag kind of originated from that, but it just kind of the rattlesnake became sort of an emblem of the 13 colonies and of the U.S. And so um, you can actually see the flag hanging in the control room at one-on-one recording studios if you watch the... Um, the year and a half in the life mm-hmm. of. You can see it hanging kind of in the ceiling. And I don't know if if they brought it in and it was there because they were they had that in mind or if it was there and they got inspired like, hey, that's kind of a cool, let's put that, let's put that on a song, let's put it on the album. And so, um, anyway, and so before I talk about the song, one other thing I'd like to point out, you know, a lot of folks joked, uh, you know, I mean, this, this is called the Black Album. The Beatles had a white album, they've got a black album. Now, they weren't the first people to have a black album, Um, some people would think Spinal Tap, Smell the Glove, it's a black album, right? So if you've seen Spinal Tap, the movie, which you need to, if you're a music fan, you just need to, uh, if you like, if you like satire. Um, but they even joke that that's where Metallica came up with the idea was, you know, it was a Spinal funny. Cow, right? But it actually came, the inspiration for it, supposedly from a, a band called Status Quo, and the album was called Hello! with an exclamation point, which is September 1973. That was the actual inspiration. So you'll have to look that up, but just to give you a visual image of it, um, it's black, as you might imagine, and then there's some people on the front that are kind of in kind of a gray, grayish sort of color, that's a little bit more evident than the snake and then the words Metallica on the front of the Black Album. But that's actually where the inspiration came from. Um, just thought that that would be an interesting little tidbit, since we're talking about the Black Album, to throw into the mix. In terms of a song, this is kind of like holier-than-thou for me. It's never one that I really go to. I think it's got a great, uh, just a great rhythm to it, a great pace to it. Um, but it's, uh, it's not one that I necessarily go
3: to first. I don't know. Do y'all feel? I I hate to call it a, a, a filler because there's no. It, I think on this record there's no filler. There I is think, no filler on this. But I agree. I think it gets lost.
2: This is the song I skip. You yeah. skipped this one. I get it. Do you really? I do. Mm-hmm. Well, because when you come off the yeah. high of inner Sandman, sad but true, even if you wanted to give a pass to um, holier than thou, huh. unforgiven, and then somewhere I may, or wherever I may roam, this is different. This is distinct. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. I get why some people would skip it.
1: I think this is a song from a lyrical standpoint and from a sonic standpoint could have been on "Injustice for All." I, I, maybe. I don't know.
3: I don't know about that, man. I don't. Mm.
1: I think it could. Okay. Um, I mean, it's definitely it sold me. It's well, it's definitely got a bit of a political, um, yeah. you know, ring to it, and. Um, But I do have this cool quote because, you know, "Injustice for All" was kind of had a lot of social commentary about the state of our country at the time and military action and stuff. And so he said that um, Hetfield said that all right, this was the song was a reaction to the American tone, the anti-American tone of their "Injustice for All" album. He says, and I quote: "This is the other side of that. America is an effing good place. I definitely think that." And that feeling came from about touring a lot. You find out what you like about certain other places, and you find out why you live in America. And even with all the bad stuff, it's still the most happening place to hang out. Um, So um, it definitely had some importance to it. I have just never liked it. I've never liked the tempo of it. Uh, Honestly, to me, some of the lyrics seem kind of cheesy.
3: Yeah, it's it's not the most insightful. I'll you know how you talk that, yeah, about sometimes sure. Megadeth,
1: yeah. there's some of their lyrics can get kind of cheeky. I mm-hmm. think this, yeah, this it could, may be. this could have been on Megadeth's United Abominations album,
2: right? Which is funny. I mean, just the name, right? Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <laughs> so if you're back in the days of the um, um, cassette era, we flip the side, yeah. mm-hmm. and we're gonna start off with uh, a barn burner of a song through the never but i'm going to play the opening of it first because i want you to listen to the opening and see if you guys think this song could have been on Ride the Lightning <laughs> Now you could make I'm, an argument. This is a thrash song.
3: That's a thrash song. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, for sure, dude. When you played it, I just wanted to flip the table over and start wrecking your living room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in. I'm yeah. in.
1: It's one. <laughs> on. It's one that, be honest with you, I think gets overlooked. I think it gets overlooked by yeah. people that yeah. listen to music, and it definitely gets overlooked by the band. Quite shocked this doesn't get played more.
3: Mm-hmm. It, at least they gave it its due in title, if nothing else, with the movie.
1: But it's not on. The, it's not on. It's but not it's not on it. the soundtrack. That's right. I mean, That's exactly. I'll give you that. I didn't think about that. That's yeah. like, you know, Death Leopard, their first album's called On Through the Night, and they had a song called On Through the Night that was on the next record.
3: Yeah. House The Houses of the Holy issue, too. Uh, also, point of order, the name of this bourbon is Blackened. Right. Dude, there's not even a cut off of justice in the playlist, much less the song Blackened. Ah. Good, uh... Hmm, how about that? You'd
2: think that Blackened would be on every single playlist right. that comes out of this. Right. Yeah. All right, so
1: this one, oh. this one I think if you're... If you're a fan of the band, have been the whole time, and you got the Black Album, and you're going through it, you're probably getting progressively disappointed. And then I feel like you get to this one, and you go, there's hope.
3: Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. Found the thrash.
1: All right, Chipper, so what are your thoughts on it? Yeah,
3: that? man, uh, my biggest, it's not a problem with a song, it's just maybe to, 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 to echo what you were saying, is it's just, it's kind of lost it's a it's all right so now we're on the b-side cool now we're on the back and it's it's almost like track one or the beginning of the record i give you that but here in the digital age it's just another you know Mm -hmm. we just get lost in it because Mm -hmm. it's not and it's not the unforgiven.
1: real quick not to interrupt you but when i start thinking about great albums and the great albums of all time and i think about dark side of the moon i think about uh exile on main street i think about uh Rumors, uh, Damn the Torpedoes, and you throw the Black Album. The thing to me that separates a good album from a great album is the backside. And this one, yes. this is what Poor to me crime. takes this album from being, in my opinion, the back half of this album takes it from four stars to five stars, uh, with without a doubt.
2: Oh, that's interesting. So I, you think it improves it?
1: I think that it does not let up enough
2: oh, to, well, I see what you're saying. Yeah. to
1: be you know, a, a downer. Like you take like some of the big albums of the eighties. Let's be honest with you. They were top heavy. Yeah. Right. You know, you, you, by the time you got to track eight or nine, that's one of the things I always liked about the black crows. They always end every album with a great song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me that shows the mark of great musicians. We're going to trust you to get through this. And there's going to be a reward. If you think some of it's filler, mm-hmm. like we said, I don't think there's anything that's no. necessarily filler. Even don't tread on me, which I skip if it comes on, if it were to come on the radio, which it's not, but I wouldn't be like, "Oh, change it," you know. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So back to you, Jeffrey.
3: Yeah. Again, I think it, it's great one for the first track on the second side. Awesome, uh, but I think back to front uh, on the record, it's another one that I think it just gets lost. Yeah. Which which is terrible because this is really um, when you can all things considered on what's happening on the record. This is so thrash. Yeah. It's oh, so yeah. thrash. Absolutely. A great. In uh, Kirk's guitar sound, the sound's like you pointed Serious out. Serious crunch. Yes, it's, it's, very, it's a sound that's very similar to Ride the Lightning. Yeah, fantastic. this should
2: have been the song of redemption to me for the people who criticize this album. This, mm-hmm. was, this was their taste of that, you know. Um, I, before we move on to the next song, I, I actually feel... Like, I understand what you're saying, because I don't think there's a bad song in this whole album, but the fact that we've gone through four of the five singles already and we're only just barely into the second side... I and I don't want to even, I don't even want to propose what order the song should have been in, but I could if you made me buy just one half of the album, it would be the first half. Sure. And to me, that says something about the order and the placement and those sorts of things, because um, by the time I get to Nothing Else Matters, like I do, I never ever hardly listen to the last four. I just never go there. But when I do, I love them. I mean, I really, really do like those songs. To me, we've already passed the two songs that I would kind of be okay or actually we're on the second one now that i would kind of be like yeah i could do without it even though it's a really solid song i just feel like they should have balanced the album better because i do agree with, that's why i was surprised with what you said david which was you know like when you think about dark side of the moon like for god's sakes brain damage and eclipse is the last one <laughs> you know i mean the only throwaway is any color you like if you ask me but it's not a throwaway it's just a transition nobody you don't give me that face nobody listens to that song by itself like it's, it's a transition song I love it it could have been the beginning okay that's I'm sorry we shouldn't I have to sleep here tonight so you love that song I absolutely love any color you like really okay this is like watching a ping pong match I know it's like really like, interesting I think I just lost I guess yeah, yeah I think you had school a match man. okay well Dang, it's over. maybe nothing else if we matters using, after this
1: if we, if, <laughs> oh. if we weren't using your equipment
2: <laughs> I know right
1: I, I would send you home <laughs> alright so to are home. we done with through the never I think so I think we are alright chipper uh, I am a Spotify nerd. Uh, I pay for Spotify, by the way, because oh, I do. believe in paying for music. But I love like when I, I do too. Look-
2: but you're really not paying for it. <laughs> well, <as laughs> you're not paying, not paying that. the artist. Yeah. I try I, to get things from the artist's online stores. That's where they get. money. I
1: love before I look at artist up to take a guess at how many listens they've got and see if I can Ooh. get within a million.
2: Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I've I've gotten like I'm such a nerd. I've gotten pretty good at it, uh, just <laughs> like guessing, but. Here's a bit of trivia, and I'm, we're going to let you talk about this song first. Nothing Else Matters
3: is by far
1: the most string Metallica of song. Of course it is.
3: Of course it is. Because I love them, but girls are half of the human race. Mm-hmm. And case in point. Barely, though. Barely. Case in point. <laughs> I had a work thing, mm-hmm. and I had a speaking part in the thing at work. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm getting the equipment ready to go, and I was checking the speakers and the microphone scenario. Um, but to check the speakers, I went on YouTube, and I found Creeping Death off of Rock Light, which mm-hmm. we had a tech stream prior to this, and I think mm-hmm. we're in agreement that might be the perfect Metallica song, oh, yeah. or the most quintessential one. Anyway, so I was playing that, and then somebody uh, brought their spouse in. And he's like, yeah, Chip was in here just checking the speakers out. And he's playing Metallica. She goes, "Oh, nothing else matters." I'm like, okay, there we go. <laughs> it's this is the Metallica song for your best buddy's little sister. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's still important. It's still got a very important place in the evolution of the band, bringing the band to the masses, as David pointed out with the mm-hmm. most streaming. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're a dyed-in-the-wool thrash metal guy. This is one that you're going you're gonna to recoil for just a hot minute, and you're going to be like, this is a Metallica love song.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And the muse for this thing was a lady. Uh, her name was Kristen Martinez, who was Hetfield's girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. And so as the story goes, Hetfield has had an acoustic guitar in his lap, and he's playing, and he's on the phone. And then he found this riff, and he's like, I got to go. <laughs> Hangs up the phone, and start hammering it out. The next thing you know, um, I think Lars heard it maybe, and he's like, this has got to go on the record. And I think Kirk had a little consternation about the whole thing as well. He's like, James is writing a love song, to his girlfriend, we're going to put it here. Okay. you know." But the success that they got it as a band and as, from a legacy standpoint is huge. Mm-hmm. It's innumerable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was So, of interest, Kirk actually did not play on this. He
1: played some harmonics. Oh, really? Yeah, so you're plugging things. I'm going to plug something. Gotcha. Uh, I'm a big fan of a podcast called uh, Metal Up Your Podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a, obviously, uh, yeah, it's me a Metallica yeah. podcast. It's uh, two guys that live in Nashville, and I think they are actually touring musicians with national country bands.
2: But mm. they are... That's okay. They're real people, too. They, they make My Black Duh. Crows
1: fandom look weak compared to their Metallica fandom. Mm-hmm. I think they're up to like 180 episodes.
2: Wait, they're they are major Metallica fans, but they tour nationally with the country? Yeah, they're,
1: they're musicians.
2: That's interesting. And, yeah. And, and,
1: anyway, and so they were at the Birmingham show. we did. They did a, oh, they okay. did a whole podcast devoted to the, the Birmingham show that we went to. Oh, that's cool. But... Um, they say on there that uh, Kirk wanted to be on the out wanted to be on the song, so that, so that he played a harmonic or two.
2: Interesting. Okay. All right. So. go. No, that's all I had. I mean, no i I, <laughs> I <laughs> just it. wanted to I just wanted to point out that he was on the song. Um, no, I th- I think it's a solid song. Um, I mean, I don't have anything bad to say about it. It's definitely not one that I skip, and this is one that I'm a proud fan of Metallica, and I really like the song. I you do know. too. And this is one that I will seek out. It deserves to be a single, I mean, um, through and through. So, and it, to me, it for it, if you're gonna call a ballad, I'll take this one any day. You know. <laughs> well, we, we haven't talked a lot. We've talked about Kirk Hammett
1: before, uh, obviously, guitar playing. Um, when I think of the greatest rhythm guitarist of all time, obviously Keith Richards is one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any anybody that plays guitar would ever doubt that. Number two was Malcolm Young. Yeah. I
2: thought, gonna you. Say, I thought you were going to say Johnny Depp imitating Keith <laughs> Richards, but go ahead. Uh,
1: um, and I would have to say James Hetfield's number three. I agree. But he shows on this song that he's uh, a lead guitar player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of bands, 95% of the bands on earth, James Hetfield would be the lead guitarist. Yeah. If he was in the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, A very, very good guitar player. Um, yeah, you're right. Lars heard him playing this and wanted to put on the album. Because... Headfield had never intended this to be a Metallica song. This is just a song for him. And I was reading an interview that Lars said when they were in the studio, this was the only song that no limitations were put on. So they weren't like, it has to be this amount of time, or we Mm -hmm. have to have this long of a solo. Lars said, this one's going to go wherever we let it go. And so they were completely creative on it. Uh, The video is basically called from all of the footage from A Year in the Life. Mm -hmm. uh, Episode. But um,
2: a lot of blurring in that video.
1: Yeah, yeah, because they have the the playboys and mm-hmm. stuff in it. Um, I have no problems with this song. You haven't watched Murder in Front, the Front Row yet? No,
2: I just ordered it on Amazon but literally the, before we hit record. But one of
1: the big things about it is, is Exodus says we still haven't played any ballads, <laughs> and so there it is. So this comes out, and then Testament, who people would say is probably part of the big six, they actually right. released a song called the Ballad you know, that's kind of, meta. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think Slayer has ever released a ballad. They have, uh, Megadeth did no, a
2: rain and well, no, go ahead. Megadeth oh, right. did a toot Lamont,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. which, which, which is a ballad. And obviously on load, mama said is really a ballad. Oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. a country ballad if we're being completely honest. Um God, it's, it is so good. Right. So th- this was something once they opened this door, they weren't scared to open that door up again. But like I said, it's the most played song on Spotify. Uh, I think largely because a lot of women like it. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, so that leads us next to a wolf and man, Kyle.
2: A wolf and man. I think this is a really solid one. It's clearly about shape shifting and turning into a werewolf. I don't. I'm
1: I, not. I, sh- I know the meaning behind. Okay, it. okay
2: I, I guess I have no idea, but I think it's a solid song. Um, I never go and listen to it. First off, I never try to seek it out. Uh, it belongs on the album. And it's clearly a good song when I get into it. That that's really all I can say about it. Kirk Hammett, and I actually I fail to mention every time that somebody else besides Ulrich and, and Hetfield were on a yep. on a song, but Kirk Hammett actually has writing credit for this one and in the interest of completion, also on Through the Never and The Unforgiven that I failed to mention as we were going through. But um I don't know I don't have anything else to say about it. I just know shape all right. shift.
1: So I am about to Drop, blow your minds. Please drop do. Drop your jaws. American Werewolf in London. This is what it's about. No. Um, I was uh, on a podcast called Potter Than Hell, my buddy Steve Wright's podcast. And it was a Metallica episode. And we were challenged to list our top seven Metallica songs. This is one of my top seven Metallica songs. I absolutely love really? this song. And it's on SM. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, was it is it Newstead or Hetfield? Yells out, "We got any werewolves in the house!" Yeah, so right. it, they talk about werewolves, but really, this song is, according to the metal Up your podcast guys, which I, I trust, it's more about like James Hetfield being a hunter and
3: Earth's the, gift, back to the meaning of life. That's yeah, sort of that you know, but yeah, then like right.
1: incorporating that with werewolf imagery. Huh. I love this song. This to me is one of the songs that makes this album so good. I don't think this is a throwaway at all. I specifically go to this album to listen to this song. Oh, really? And I love that they had it on S and M. Uh, they don't play it all that much anymore. I think it's on the uh, Binge and Purge. It is live It's on the back s- or in that um, set, Yeah, I, yeah. I can't say enough good things about like this. To me, is their best like deep track. And y- y'all think I'm crazy? No,
2: I think I'm. I think I agree. I've never. I've just never thought of it as being a deep track. Um, or
3: maybe one of their best, but I think I agree with you. Uh, the, you, you've, you put a different light on this for me, man. Uh, thank you for that, <laughs> honestly, because you know I'm, I'm looking here, and I've, I've got the, the jacket that came with the CD that I bought when I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. It's still here. It's pretty awesome. But you look at the lyrics, and it's like, Earth's gift, meaning of life. Yeah, call yeah, it, like, it a wild like, yeah, what's, what's going on here? Is, is this like Metallica getting New Age on me, or dude, what's up? Okay, now we know. You answer the question, and and that immediately makes me like the whole thing better.
1: Well, you know. I think. I think. <laughs> just <no Yeah>. <laughs> I say this in a good way. Hetfield could have been a redneck from the south.
3: Oh yeah. Oh sure. I mean, he's into I, cars.
2: That's an interior. Oh yeah, oh, he's absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he was just born guns. in the wrong state.
1: You know, he was. He was like, if I didn't know anything about him, I would say James Hetfield's from Texas. You
2: know. <laughs> yeah, like East Texas. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, but he, you know, he's a big hunter and. Yeah. Um, I, I love the whole shapeshift. And like like I said, to me, the, one of the great things about s and which thank goodness there's going to be an s 2 in August. It's going to be released as a box set. Lars has already shown the copy of what it looks like. Sweet. But they took some of those songs on S&M that aren't their most popular ones and played them. And Of Wolf and Man w- was one, which, uh, like I said, I absolutely love. Are, do we have anything else on, on that one?
2: Uh, I don't have anything. Oh, good. All right. No, man. So
1: that brings us to The God That Failed. Uh, and this song is about um the death of uh, James Hetfield's mother, I believe from yes. cancer yes and uh, like we said she's a, a member of the Christian Science movement and I think both his parents were and um, so she got sick with cancer and she believed God was going to heal her and, and and they don't I guess don't believe in Western medicine and you know talks about her screaming in pain and you know she she just died a horrible death, which you know, at the very least if they couldn't cure it they could have extended her life give her palliative care you know make things better and like i said i don't think that james Hetfield is like against religion i think he's just you know hey you've got you know you could you could if god has given us this 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 medicine to help us you know mm-hmm. there's the whole thing of the guy that's like he's drowning and uh the guy comes up in the boat. And he says, "No, God's going to save me." And he says, "Okay." And the guy comes up in the helicopter And he says, no, God's going to save me. He dies and gets to heaven. And he goes, "God, why didn't you save me?" He goes, "What do you think? The boat and the helicopter." <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but uh, th- this is, you know, this this piggybacks piggybacks on some other songs that they they have done, like "Leper Messiah." You know, mm-hmm. had some choice words about, I guess, the TV uh, event uh, evangelist of the time. <clears throat> I think it's a, a great song of note they did not debut it on that tour did not play, did not start it play it until 1994 which i thought was uh, interesting but if you read the lyrics to this these are really deep personal lyrics yeah. and you know injustice for all was about big themes master of puppets had a lot to do with obviously drug abuse insanity um, um, you know battery a lot of people kind of debate exactly what that's about. And, you know, Ride the Lightning, you had social commentary on, like, the death penalty. and You have Creeping Death, which is built on a, a biblical story, and then kill mm-hmm. them all. is just this vicious thing. To me, this is when he, nothing else matters, and The God That Failed, to me, are the two where he really wrote personal lyrics.
3: I think this is Hetfield, just, <clears throat> he's in pain. Mm-hmm. He's just in pain about his mom. Yeah. I get it. And I, I, will, I think the song's awesome. Yeah, you know, I really think it comes through. Um, I think musically and lyrically. I mean, it's it's tight as a drum. It's got a great spot here on the record. Mm-hmm. It fits here, um, and I think this is the first time we really open that curtain up on on what's going on with Hatfield. And, and once and mm-hmm. once he started,
1: it became evident on other albums. Yeah. him writing more until
2: it songs.
3: sleeps and stuff like that. Man, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean this is this is really I mean just the last two songs have opened my eyes a lot because I I've never even thought about the lyrical content of it, you know, certainly. So, A wolf and man is a totally different song to me now. I mean, just in the last 10 minutes. And I think this one is as well. I've I've never thought about the lyrics of it, but now that I'm reading them, they're powerful, you know. And I kind of I cheated and I looked ahead for my friend of misery just to kind of like right. what is that? I mean, that's another personal one, you know. So, I mean, maybe maybe I just need to reframe this album in my head because <laughs> I was clearly I wasn't thinking about the lyrical content and, and those sorts of things. I was really thinking about how, how it moved me. And, and, you know, if you understand the context behind it, or even if you don't, and you just deeply think about your own situation, you can give songs context that may not even exist, you know? So, uh, I've, I've got to, i got to be honest on my ride back home tomorrow. I'm going to give this a lot. I'm going to give side B
3: another listen, you know?
2: All right. So the next song
1: is my fender of misery.
3: Here you go. Um, interesting thing probably to me anyway the most interesting thing about this one is this is a Newstead writing credit mm-hmm. you know right out of the gate um because he's responsible for that bass line that it opens with let's listen to that bass line yeah bass 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 really. it's so Cause, awesome cause
1: it's very rare that you have a song built around a bass line. Yes. anesthesia
2: pulling teeth yeah I and mean, you know other than that it's hard to name all right one. so let's take a listen from metallica
3: Transition out of the bass line, there's a little bit of that lumber. You know, Mm -hmm. that just big, fat, kind of the same sad but true. Not necessarily with the energy and the intensity, but it's there. That element's there before it gets into the chorus and the verse, uh, which is amazing. Um, Lyrically, there's a line in there where it says, The empty can rattles the most. And you think about it in the context of misery and people being miserable, Mm -hmm. and the empty can rattles the most. Dude. Awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. Oh, yeah. you know, we've all been around people in real life that are like that. You know what I mean? Right. And there's your context right there, man. Right here in the lyrics. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, it was originally going to be an instrumental. And do you know where the first time they played it live was? No. If I care to guess. I don't have any idea. Monsters are 2012. What? Or the European so tour. That's if, the one I was talking if about. If you watch. The 20th anniversary. If you, watch, it really? if you watch, and i got to make sure I get it right, Yeah. the cunning... Stunt. That's a
2: tough one. I said that one wrong for years. Yeah. Uh, DVD. <laughs> uh,
1: Newstead has a little kind of solo section, and he plays the beginning of this, and it goes into some other stuff. Um, how this was not played live until then, like it, I don't I don't understand recording a song with the intent of never playing it live. Right. Now, why are you putting it on there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, because it does seem like filler in that case.
1: Right. And so, like, it's 2012. I think it was. I guess it was either when they did the anniversary shows. That was or? the 20th
2: anniversary European tour. That's what yeah. I was talking about earlier. I yeah. just couldn't think about it.
1: Um, this is one of those ones, I think, that makes this album, it takes it to that next level yeah. because it does not drop off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a great uh, lyrically. It's very deep, oh, yeah. and it's unique. Like, uh, I was interviewing uh, Jimmy Ashurst, who was in Buck Cherry and Easy Strive and the Juju Hounds, and obviously the lead single for Easy Strive and the Juju Hounds was Shuffle It All. Which starts with a cool bass, li- bass lick, you know, and it's a, a riff. And those are the only two songs I can really think of that it's an actual bass riff being played. Um, Kyle, you're a musician. Kind of an interesting way to start the song, isn't
2: it? Oh, it absolutely is. And if you look at how it's played, it's very simple to play. Right. I mean, it just so. But that is kind of irrelevant. How simple it is to play. Um, it sounds amazing, you know. Um, it, it, I just, I just love this song. This is, uh, th- this is one that I would actually go to. You know, I made the comment like on side B, the only one I would actually go to, really first off, is nothing else matters, which is kind of shallow of me. This I think is the other one. Um, it, it's just got such a great haunting opening baseline. So,
1: yeah, I agree. All right, there's one song left, Kyle. I'll let you take it.
2: All right, the struggle within. Um, I gotta admit, I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna have a ton to say about it. Um, I like the song. I think I'd mention this one. This one feels like the heaviest one to me on the album. And when I say heavy, it's not like it's not girthy and it's not powerful in the sense of kicking you in the in the throat, you know, like with a with a big punching line or something. But in terms of it being a fast song and like a thrash metal feeling song, I love the way that Hetfield says go. And then, like, it goes into the, isn't this a song? It goes into the solo. Like, I just love the energy of the song. The song never lets up. Um, so, anyway, that's all I've got to say about it. It's clearly a, a deeply, if you look at the lyrics to this thing, um, it's got, uh, I mean, it kind of, it almost fits hand in hand with my friend, like, Misery, the last song. I mean, it, it yeah. fits right in that same theme, you know. But, anyway. I,
1: it was It was, so it was recorded on the very last day in the studio. So this was it. Um, which is which is interesting because um, you don't really hear a lot about Metallica having a lot of unreleased material or Mm b-sides like a lot of bands you know Um, the song is actually about James running out of ideas to write about
2: that's interesting I would have guessed depression but maybe he was depressed I'm
3: really glad you're bringing it strong dude with you know some of the the meanings behind (laughs) these I'm like I got nothing right,
2: let's see
1: right. (laughs) Over, under. Mm-hmm. How many times it's been played live? Five. Over, under.
2: Under. Under. 17. Really?
1: And I think they were all on that tour where
2: they You should have gone over because then at least one of us would have won. It's like the know. price is right. Uh, man. That <laughs> was yeah. pretty dumb, wasn't it? <laughs> it means I, could keep
1: I know, right? yeah, get to keep all but the black and uh I know, right? You moves. can keep it after yeah.
2: tomorrow. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, yeah. That was pretty dumb. Yeah, I thought, it, I thought it's a good song. I, this is one that if you were a diehard, you could kind of gravitate toward this one a little bit. Mm-hmm. Chipper, it's the last song of that one. What are your thoughts?
3: I like it. I mean, I do. I, I like it. Um, now in the context of what you're telling me about, James, trying to finish the record up, makes a lot of sense. Maybe I was looking too deep in it, but I'll tell you what, man. If you're in the gym and this is going in your headphones and you're, struggle. You know, yeah. it's, it's a struggle, man. I mean, so yeah, that's kind of cool, but you know, it talks about your ruin and this, that, and the other, and eh, okay, maybe that's, that's not exactly the same lens, but um, it's good, it's, it fits the record. I don't know if I'd put his last track, honestly. Um, other than knowing the lyrical content. Yeah, right. Which is interesting. Which, which is important to the story. Well, I'll because this
2: album clocks in at 62 minutes, I believe. 62 minutes and 40 so. seconds. They were done with an album two songs ago. You know, yeah. like, it, to me, the perfect length of an album is 43 minutes. Okay. And not so, 44. Not 44. Not 42. Not 42. Wow, what, what album was 43 minutes? Dark Side of the Moon. That's what I was... I, uh, I, I, okay.
1: Hey, to Kyle, I threw that softball up there and it just spun and hung. <laughs>
2: Love, well, let me look it up because I want to make sure that I'm right about forty whatever I just said. But no, I mean seriously, they, they they could have stopped a couple of songs ago. It's not like they were trying to fill up the album. But this is clearly a really really good song, and I'm glad it closes the album.
1: All right, Chipper, you got anything else on this one?
2: I'm good, man. I'm clear.
1: All right, so that wraps up the album. Dark
2: Dark Side of the Moon is 43 minutes and 9 seconds.
1: So that's your idea. It's 43 minutes and 9 seconds is your... your, That's the ideal length of any album. It's kind of like I like smoking meats on on the uh, big green egg. And like pork, you pull it at... A pork butt, you pull it 203. Not 205, not a (laughs) 201. It's kind of like in pharmacy school. Remember like the melting point of things? Yeah. Like certain compounds melt at... 27 degrees Celsius, not 26, right. not 26 and a half. It's at 27. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, that rounds out the album. Obviously, this tour was one of the longest tours in history, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it took a staggering toll on them physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. It didn't take a toll on their pocketbook, though. No. Um, and if you watch one of the documentaries, it the, the manager says, all right, so the album comes out, They go to a town, they have 8,000 people. They tour for a year, release two more singles, they come back and it's 12,000 people. And then they come back on some of these uh, cycles a third and fourth time, and it's 15,000 people. And he's like, and so you have that many people seeing it new for like the first time. And, And obviously this wore them out. And I think, honestly, I think that this whole cycle took a toll on them. And it took them a while to regroup for Load you know, and Reload. And obviously, they once again say, we're going to change our style completely again. Um, but the, the legacy of this album, it's up there now with like Dark Side of the Moon like or Exile of Main Street. You have people go, oh, well, that's their Exile. Mm-hmm. Or that's their Dark Side of the Moon. Or if like somebody gets really experimental, that's their Radiohead Kid A.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now you can throw in, that's their Black album. Yeah. Uh, and I And we, we've seen this with numerous bands yep. get to a point. Yep. I think you could say like the Black Keys El Camino album was their black album. They went from this like underground garage band, built this following, and they said, you know what, we want to make our money. Whereas I don't think Metallica went into this necessarily we want to make our money. We don't want to play these complex songs anymore. We want to play shorter, easier stuff. Mm-hmm. And it also goes to say that the palette of people likes more simple or Mm -hmm. songs. There's a reason Dream Theater doesn't sell out stadiums. It's not because they aren't good musicians, but nobody wants to hear... They do sell out
2: theaters.
1: Right, but they're not stadiums.
2: And I'm a Dream Theater fan. I
1: like them too. There's a lot of stuff on (laughs) on there I like. right, so let's go around the table here real quick. We'll start with you, Chipper. Uh, The Legacy of the Black Island.
3: There was Metallica before this record, and there's Metallica after this record. Uh, Polished the sound, took Metallica to the masses, um, which is good and bad. Uh, I think in recent years, particularly Death Magnetic and uh, Hardwired, we're getting maybe a little more black album era, maybe slightly pre-black album uh, with sound and feel and energy and attitude and all of that. But you, this album is so important for the band And for thrash and for you know for heavy music because there there are shades of hard rock in here Mm -hmm. and not necessarily metal and and
1: bands like Testament, uh, Exodus, and Slayer they benefited from this album absolutely. They they may be embarrassed to say that, but Mm -hmm. this raised their profile.
3: It, It it sure absolutely and I think you know as a parallel there are some bands out there that were on the cusp of of going from big to really big like Metallica was, you know before recording this album. For instance, my favorite Pantera, had they been willing to, to soften it down a little bit, compress, uh, song, well, and they and were stuff? originally
1: a hair metal band.
3: Uh, unfortunately, yes, I, I hate to say that, but you you were right more in more in line with the LA guys uh, than than the Bay Area and look and music and look and music and and that quickly changed. Fortunately, um, but yeah, uh, Metallica made that conscious effort to take it to the next level, um, and I think. In doing so, like we said, that brings Metallica thrash. All of that just just makes it explode, makes it accessible, Ah. visible.
2: This is one of the most important things that they could have done for their career, uh, given where they were and where they went afterwards, you know. Um, This is clearly, I mean, you said it perfectly, Trevor, like there was Metallica before this and then there was Metallica after this, you know. Um, something was happening, happening. They were forged in the fire of, of the studios and in and, and this Bob Rock process that created a different um, phase to Metallica. I mean, so I can view Metallica really in three phases. Uh, the first being Kill 'Em All to Injustice For All. The next being Black Album, probably until right before St. Anger. And then there was like this weird Purgatory, St. Anger, Lulu thing. And then there's like Present Present day Metallica, you know, if you will. So to me, this began that that period, um, you know, the next phase of Metallica. Incredibly important to their legacy. It's gone sixteen time platinum, is the is what I've uh, what that's I. That's just in America. Just in America, yeah. Well, that's by the RIAA. So that's that, all that matters, Kyle. That is all that matters. Yes, very <laughs> very geocentric, um, not ethnocentric, but geocentric. And so, um, and so uh, that's. Uh, I don't know what else there's to say about this. I mean, th- this came along at a really interesting time. I mean, this was made for um, vinyl, CD, and tape release, you know, and it, so there's only a few out, I say a few, I mean, there, I'm sure there's hundreds, but, but in, there was one period of time where you were, you were making something for several different formats. So this kind of represents the end of that, that era for that as well. You know, you only had a few more years where you were really thinking about those different format releases, so anyway, I just I think this is such a profound album. It's probably my top ten albums of all time. There's not a bad song on it. Um, as we've mentioned, um, yeah, this is this is a desert island disc for me. You know,
1: well, it has definitely given them like the ability to at their age still play like stadiums and stuff. And um, I know we all three saw them on this last tour, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and like I said, Chipper and I were at the first one. They have almost become. <laughs> this is gonna be funny. The Jimmy Buffett of thrash metal.
2: Oh, that is so, that, that, that is wow. interesting they observation. It, yeah. it's, it's, an, it's, <laughs> an, it's an event. Yeah,
1: it is. So like, yeah. um, I know you saw him with like Volbeat and uh, Avenged Sevenfold. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, when Chipper and I saw him, it was just them.
3: Yeah. Now when I saw him in Miami in 2017, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was Volbeat and Avenged Sevenfold, mm-hmm. which is cool. But when we saw him in Birmingham, it was Jim Brewer. Right, so you had for like, an hour, for
1: like an hour and <laughs> a half,
3: you had this whole
1: Jim Brewer thing going on yeah. where he would come on stage, tell jokes, then he would disappear, and then he's like backstage on the camera, and then he comes back, and then it was like the whole sing-along thing. And then he does... Uh, that which,
3: which I might add was amazing. It was awesome. It was, it was, it was like awesome.
1: Pantera, Iron Maiden. Sabbath. Yeah, yeah dude. and, and you good. sang along to it. And it was you know the, the show was in the round, and... You know they did before, anything, like the race things. I was like a guy like seventy years old there.
3: Yeah.
1: And um, my wife is not a music fan, and uh, I, you know I'm into metal and all kinds of music. She knows what a nut I am. And I remember one night you and your wife were over here, and your sweet wife, uh, you wouldn't. I would never picture her at a heavy metal concert. You, you under, wouldn't. Under any circumstances. No. But she went with Chipper, and so Chipper and I were talking about, yeah, the next time Metallica tours, we got to go. And my wife is like, oh, I'll just let. You and Chipper enjoy that one. And Amanda was like, No, Suzanne, it's like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, it's not there it's there's there's completely peaceful. It's almost like a family. And everybody enjoys it, sings along, has a great time, and really celebrates the music. And it's to me, it's always funny. You have these families going and people are acting like it's all like really positive music. Yeah. And then you read the lyrics, it's not.
3: It's not. It's one it- of the great Mm-hmm.
1: One, of the, one of the one of the great paradoxes of, of music
3: the vibe at a Metallica show these days is awesome because yeah. it's it's I'm not going to say it's a family activity but the people there are a family mm-hmm. yeah you know if that makes sense yeah because you're you're soldiers in the same army man and it's right. it's <laughs> awesome uh, people you've never met before before COVID mm-hmm. high-fiving each other you know I was wearing a Pantera shirt there's a guy wearing a Slayer shirt we had something in common we were talking and stuff uh d- it, it's awesome. Yeah, and my dear sweet wife who under any other circumstances would never be at a metal show had a great time. Right. She had a great time because of the vibe, because of the energy and then she's also watching me lose my mess when Creeping Death starts up. You know, oh, yeah. Just like, oh. <laughs> well, well I, I mean,
1: like, you know, I, it, my wife has said, like, she'll go, look, we'll all go. Next I, time they tour, I, we'll, I, we'll, we'll all go and, this. And, and, and have fun. And I was telling her, you're going to have fun.
3: Yeah.
1: Even if, like, you just didn't like the audio visuals. Like when they had the moths, the yeah. drones flying. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. You know? And if you know, I don't know if you know this, they messed they malfunctioned in Birmingham. Did they, they really? talk about that on that Metal of Your no podcast? Way. They went in late. They went in, something happened. And so if you notice that they're supposed to go in for the song's over with, and I don't think they go in until like the song is over with, and there's like a seven second problem that they had with them.
3: I didn't know that. Hmm.
1: So the guy, that host, the, yeah, the, the, the guys that host the podcast were saying that. So
3: that's really interesting.
1: We're kind of wrapping this up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've talked about the album. We've talked about the legacy. Uh, the whiskey is good.
2: Whiskey's good. I will have a little bit more of it after this.
1: It's not a. It's. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's not a, a like a three hundred dollar bottle of, of bourbon, but it's definitely better. To, it's. I'd say it's a step or two up from like Jack Daniels.
2: It is definitely a separate two-up, and I mean, I think you said $50 for 750 mils. I mean, I'm going to pour me another little bit now just because I don't have ice in here, so I can give it like a nice clean, you know, another right. like pass at the pallet. Right. Um, but, no, I think this is a very solid one, you know. Um, and for it to be a blended whiskey, it's hard to mess those up, you would think. Right. Like, I can imagine, like, putting something in a barrel and then 10 years checking on it and you're like, ah, oh, that didn't turn out so well. We'll call that single barrel, right. you know, or something like that. Whereas this is like, you don't like it, just blend it differently next time, you know.
1: <laughs> all right, so, so here we go. If, I'm yeah. going to
2: give it just one more little sip and see what happens.
1: Yeah, this is a bad pod, Kyle, with all this dead air.
2: Mm. That's Okay. Yeah, it's solid. It's still good.
1: I think it'd be a good, like a good winter whiskey.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Good winter whiskey, sitting on the back porch with a shotgun, some vodka, shooting a bear. Getting
3: your James Hetfield yeah. on. It yeah, yes,
2: yeah. absolutely. Driving
1: one of those hot rods like he does. in Yeah. The, uh, some Have you kind seen of the monster.
2: book? Uh, the, the book that's coming
1: out about the, uh, the his hot rod book. Yeah, yeah. yeah He's
2: absolutely. also building coffee den tables, yeah. which you
1: can like go to their website. Let's plug that. You can go to their website yeah. and you can like buy like a ten dollar raffle. I'd love to have a James Hetfield in table.
2: Dude, why not? Absolutely. I mean, Dude, yeah. how awesome would that be in your vinyl room? Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. So, um, Kyle, you're an old hat at this. This is like number six you've done with me. Yes. Uh, I think. I'm Chipper. becoming
2: the Steve Martin of, of the show, wow. which I think I've mentioned that before. I, I've got to get new jokes. Yeah. I've got I to get a different podcast. The, you're the I don't Joan know. Rivers of the podcast. Joan Rivers, that's right.
1: Um, <laughs> I
2: uh, prefer Steve Martin. And so,
1: Chipper, I told you uh, you would do good and if i were grading you you'd get an a plus.
2: Oh, oh yeah, a plus, absolutely. You
1: nice. So you you uh, you would definitely get another invite? Very good. Um, we mm-hmm. may have That's to do awesome. another Metallica album. Uh,
2: I mean we've be, only got 15 others to go. Yeah, this I'm, could be I'm the, free this year. <laughs> this could be
1: the uh, the Metallica crew. Um, I I've, I've wanted to do one on Metallica for a long time. Um, and um, Chris is a Metallica fan, but there he's he's a, a Slayer Exodus guy mm-hmm. and Anthrax um, so um, he's not the biggest Metallica fan. So I mean, he's cool with me with me doing this one. And like I said, he and I both were on the Potter Than Hell podcast where we talked about our top seven Metallica songs. And it's so funny, Steve Wright, and I know Steve's gonna listen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bust you here for a second, Steve. Steve does not like Master of Puppets, the album. Hmm. And so like when we're talking about all of that,
2: seems sacrilegious to right? I mean, how do you so, not like Master so of Puppets? So we
1: were we were doing it over Skype, but we weren't doing video. We we're just recording uh-huh. audio. So we're sitting there, and he's like, guys, i got to admit, I don't like the album Master of Puppets. Well, I went, oh. and he goes, did somebody just let out a sigh? <laughs> and I was like, love you, Steve. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Chipper, you've done a great job. Uh, I'll, you're, this won't be your last appearance if I have anything to do with it. Oh, man, I appreciate it, dude. This, this has been fantastic. Since it's my show, I, I, I can say that. Um, you've done great. Uh, may have you on. Maybe, maybe we can mix some motorhead in a little bit next time. <laughs> uh, Pantera. Album. Chris, actually, my coach is a huge Pantera fan. Is so he we, really? We may do like a Pantera episode. Oh
3: man. I'm in.
1: Uh, Kyle, yeah. you know, you're always welcome.
2: Absolutely. You'll have to leave me out of everything that y'all just said though. Cause I cannot contribute at all. I know. Like invite me to the airbag podcast. Invite me to, uh, any of the Prague stuff you want to do? We still have some Pink
1: Floyd podcasts we need to do.
2: Dude, I would love it, man. I would love to do animals front to back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: We'll knock on animals. <laughs> Chipper, like I said, uh, it, it was great to have you. You'll definitely be back on. You did great. Uh, you took copious amounts of notes. Uh,
3: uh, yeah. After, uh, I think uh, as we were setting up, everybody was like, wow, your handwriting's so small. I'm like, uh,
1: yeah, this is my handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got some notes, man. I wasn't coming in here how how on it. But hey, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, Chris and I will be back with you uh, very soon. Have a good week and take care.